This is exactly right. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deep deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Hello! And welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I'm Kara Clank. And I'm Lisa Traeger. Um, every week we talk about an episode of SVU, the true crime it's based on. And then we have a guest from the episode. Today it is a reoccurring. Okay, so stay tuned. And now we catch up. We chit chat. <laughs> I did see you. I did have a 1 a.m. flight. And so I felt very chic. Um, and I went to a we went to a friend's birthday. And then from the birthday, I went to the airport. So I feel like yeah, Lady Gaga. <laughs> Yeah, it was a real, yeah, I, I can't believe you booked a 1am flight. Like, that's wild. But I get you got to do what you got to do. How was it? Were you dreaming of first class? Yeah, I know. That's, uh, <laughs> but that I did sleep. I did sleep, but I was in main cabin. But it is this thing. I'm like, this makes the most amount of sense. And then I land and then I nap. But then it's like, you do feel insane. You, the yeah. day is... It's a it's a struggle. I'm not young yeah. anymore, but um, <laughs> it was worth it because you get to see I got to have my mom's food for breakfast, nap, have her food for dinner and then do two show. You know, it was like a full day. Yeah. But I do have to say I fell asleep watching USA Network SVU and I woke up, turned on the TV and more SVU was on. <laughs> Welcome home, baby. Cable's back in your life. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, What's it called? But um, what are you up to in California? 
Um, not too much. I'm just, you know, it's very autumnal here. I mean, for LA, like it's still 75 at the high most days, but it's like, there's a kind of a chill in the air and I'm feeling very like, um, it's going to be, it's nice and folly, but I know it's going to be like eighties this weekend. So it's going to be short lived, but you know, yeah, but fun. I want eighties again. I want, I'm not done with pool. I want to keep swimming. Yeah, you're going to keep swimming, Dory. Don't worry. <laughs> um, I what else, what is going As on? As someone well, being we... on a swim team, Dory was our icon. <laughs> Just keep swimming. She's Rosie's icon. Rosie loves Dory. Um, well, and she yeah. loves police dogs now. Oh, God, I know. I told you guys I caved. I bought the chase costume, but I did buy. She wants she wants Oscar to be the little fire marshal dog and he's a Dalmatian. So I did get like a cute Dalmatian costume for Oscar as well as an oversized Paw Patrol hat that will identify him as Marshall. Uh, I don't know. Wait, uh, this is my life. It's a nightmare. I saw, I watched Cruella in and out of sleep on the plane. Oh, what were they thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I don't no get sense. what these live Disney things are for. Like, Cause for me, like Disney movies are mostly for children, though. I know adults enjoy them, but like, are there enough adults who love Disney who are going to live action? Cruella? Like I think Cruella and Maleficent are too, they're too scary for 13 and under or like 12 and under maybe. Yeah. But I liked the 101 Dalmatian with like Glenn Close. Like I did like that, um, oh, that one with those dogs, but I was a kid when it came or younger. I don't yeah. know if I was a kid, but I didn't hate it. I mean, to me, animation and cartoons are the best. Like, you can't get better. In a cartoon, you can do anything you want. Yeah. So live action will never be as good to, in my heart. And the Glenn Close is more like the story of the 101 Dalmatians, whereas Cruella is like an origin story of how Cruella became so psycho. Like, it doesn't really... I don't get what who's going to see that. Like, but the story is... It's like everyone wants to be a fashion designer, so she keeps <laughs> making spectacles, but no one can catch her. It's like... It doesn't even make, maybe if I wasn't in and out of sleep, but like I would wake up and be like, what is this? What is yeah. this? I mean, Emma, it's a role of a lifetime, honestly, Cruella. I wish Rosie wanted to be Cruella for Halloween. That oh. would be cute. I think down the line, Rosie's got some Cruella tendencies in her. Don't worry. She's been doing a lot of can I burp you, but is smacking me on the back very hard. So <laughs> well, she's got a violent streak. <laughs> maybe she is looking at someone who's also doing that, Kara. <laughs> yeah, I'm she when I'm burping Oscar, she goes, don't hit him. And I'm like, I'm not hitting him. I'm burping him. And then she thinks she can burp me by smacking me as hard as she can. Yeah, but that's what it does look like because the baby is tiny. Anytime any parent is burping their child, I'm like, is that really necessary? Like, did you just see this in a movie or is this real? You have to just beat the shit out of them. Listen, you really do have to do it because otherwise they're cranky as fuck and they're all gassy. It's like if you do, if it's like if you couldn't burp or fart on your own, you got to like help them. Oh, God, I have enough problems. <laughs> I have enough problems. <laughs> we all we actually went to a lot of birthday parties. We were at a Saturday. We yeah. we were at a star studded birthday party Saturday, I would say. Investigative yeah, reporter some... Ronan Farrow was there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was a buzz. But then I was smoking weed outside the party and three um, young women walked out. And I think they were starstruck by Nicole Byer. And it was awesome it was really yeah. cute they were like oh my god i can't believe she's there but we have to say hi no she's having fun we can't bother her and they were really <laughs> having um a full panic of what to do with nicole nearby 
Yeah, I walked the floor of of DragCon with Nicole, and that was tough. It's tough to get anywhere. Like, I was taking photos of her with fans like I was her personal photographer. I was like, do you want me to take it? Do you want me to take it? Like, it was so, like, wild. But I was also with Alan's boyfriend, Michael, who was on Project Runway, and he was getting just as much. I was at go. that time... Yeah, we're, we're going, going to DragCon. Drag we have to it's go to DragCon. No, it's a non, it's non-issue. We'll, we'll definitely do it. It's going to be great. I can't fucking wait. I just love Drag Race so much. <laughs> I've noticed no, dra- that Shay um, watches my stories. She's like in one of my top little faces. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like trying to perform for her a little bit. <laughs> That's really exciting. <laughs> You're like, hey. Um, hey, bitch. <laughs> also, I am having um I'm on the road. Check out my Instagram for information, but I'm doing a Halloween show and I am going to dress as someone from Drag Race. So that's my clue for my costume. Oh, wait, I thought you told me you were being somebody different. And now I'm remembering it's Julia telling me what she was being. Yeah, she's going to be Cher. That's right. I thought that's what you were being. And so now I'm baffled as to what you're being. But you can tell me later. No, I'm going to be a drag rate from the show. I'm going to be. Oh, yes. Outfit. I know what you're being. I know what you're being. I know what you're being. Yeah, gonna it's great. It's going to be great. Race. You got to go see Lisa if you're in New York, but on, on Halloween. But also she has a bunch of other dates that I'll actually make money off of. So please, please buy yeah, a ticket. We can post those on our Instagram. Come see me today. at a mall. What else do you have to yeah. do with your life? Don't you want to go <laughs> sit in a mall? Come on. Yeah. Don't you want to drink a Mai Tai, but named after a funny comedian, like a Robin, a Robin Mai Tai genie Tai? I don't know. (laughs) I'm just saying words. I wasn't even clever at all. I did. It's Chicago. I stayed out late. You know what I mean? A a Janine Garofalo, like a drink with gin (laughs) or a um, a Mai Tai. I don't know. A Mai Tai. The Mai Tai is hard. What's that? What? What's I woke up early and wanted to go back to bed. So I put on Seinfeld on the laptop and I did fall asleep to the Janine Garofalo episode uh, slowly. Yeah. So Hannah is shaking her head. Yes. I need to calm down voices down in my head. It is a problem. Should I be able to sit in silence? Maybe, but I can't. Okay. I can't. (laughs) I need noises at all times for me to be able to function in this world or smoking weed. I have a lot of problems, but Blair texted me saying I was glowing at her birthday party. So I'm doing something. right. You did. You were really excited to like see people and like be, I feel like you know, we've been slowly opening up a little bit more and more all the time in LA, but like people are actually starting to have birthday parties. Like the friend that had a birthday party on Saturday has been one of my most mati- like what's the stringent COVID friends. Like she is very like, you know, masks at all time and never leaving the house. Like she just never really was out. And so her having a public birthday party, my husband was like, I think we're back. Like, I think we're coming. Well, we have to, we have to say to everyone what happened at that party, the trickery, the trickery that was involved. But I also need to mention, so I'm in Chicago right now. And I guess yesterday was the day where any police officer who was not vaccinated has been laid off or suspended. And so there's like half the force is not working. And, you know, in Chicago, the joke is everyone's drunk driving. I was not. But so everyone was like, "Okay, we're feeling safer tonight. But yeah, I guess all the cops are not working because of the vaccine. Is it really that I I was told by someone that they're exaggerating the numbers of cops that are not vaccinated? Is it really like half? Do you think it's huge number? Um, I do. Well, because then someone's like, really? And then everyone was like, do you know who becomes the Chicago police? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, not everyone has chased the case. Um, there are <laughs> chases on the case. I think he'd get vaxxed. I do think he would get vaxxed. 
Yeah, my favorite, one of my fave uh, <laughs> porn stars, Abella Danger. She was like, "Yeah, of course I'm vaxxed. I'm trying to go to Miami Heat games into Paris." Okay, she <laughs> she's like, "I want to do shit." Of course I'm getting vaxxed. Wait, I didn't. Um, I op- I got to open for my friend Sam J this week at the Troubadour, and that's where like Elton John has performed. Huge. And usually I drive everywhere, and I was like, you know what, I'm gonna. I'm going to treat myself. I'm going to Uber. I'm going to like have some drinks. I really want to enjoy this monumentous moment in my life. And I was in the shower crying by midnight. I was, I got too drunk too fast. And (laughs) the Uber driver could have kidnapped me, assaulted me at any moment. I tipped him a hundred percent. Like that's the low bar for men where I was like, this Uber driver could have killed me and he didn't. Here's $20. Good job. Yeah. (laughs) That's how it felt because I, I had he had to pull over multiple times for me to breathe. I had to have my head out the window like a dog. I was like a golden retriever. I was just like counting to myself not to puke all over this man's car. And he was so kind to me. And it was like, wow, you could have taken me to a ditch if you wanted. Yeah. You really could have. It's really scary out there. But I don't know why I said any of this, but because I think you wanted to mention that one of your favorite porn stars was in. The yes, audience. that's exactly why. Yeah. Thank you, Kara. Yeah. Nikki Hartz. She does love true crime. I hope she listens. But her and her wife, Lee Raven, they were at the show. Nikki did DM me. And um, that did mean a lot to me, Kara. Thank you for remembering. You're welcome. <laughs> I knew I knew where this was going. Tell them about the trickery and then we will get started. Okay, real quick trickery packed. is that like so we're at this restaurant and, and it's a vegan restaurant in my neighborhood, but it's a vegan sports bar. So it's like the food's actually really, really good. And I've been there a bunch of times. I mostly get beer. I hadn't really gotten drinks there before, like like cocktails. And our friend had Lauren had told us like, oh, yeah, they have a full bar. They have a full bar because like they have a cocktail menu. But on their cocktail menu, things are called like joke and a coke or the or like the mighty mule kicky mule or whatever and like so you're reading it and you're and but it doesn't say this drink is made out of vodka and ginger beer and blah 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 it just has the name of the drink so as i'm drinking it i'm looking inside the restaurant and i'm like why is the bar why are the bottles not on display like this is that's weird like every place that has an open bar the bottles are on display and then everyone kept like i wanted tequila rocks and instead of saying Oh, we're actually beer and wine only. She'd go, well, what's the closest um, on the menu to this? That's what the server kept saying. And people tried to get vodka sodas and they couldn't. And then I was told, well, we just have the mixed drinks on tap. And that made sense to me. I go, oh, okay, then I'll take this one. But they're not. They're not. I think it's a place that doesn't have a liquor license. I think basically the tequila soda is agave wine with soda. Like our friend Nicole was getting Aperol spritzes. And I feel like I watched them pour something orange that wasn't Aperol, but probably like a apricot wine or whatever is the closest to to, um, Aperol into these drinks. So these drinks are like. $12, $15, like they're the same price as like hard spirit drinks, but they're made out of like, you know, wines and rice wine and like, you know, stuff like that. And they're not up front. And it's like, who the fuck wants to drink a pina colada without getting drunk? You think I need 1500 calories of sugar in my life? I don't need that. (laughs) So we're all drinking frozen slushies being like, what the fuck? We're we're in Hollywood, bitch. Like. I discovered I realized it and I was walking around and I told a couple people and then it gets back to Lisa and Lisa comes up to me and goes did you know that the drinks aren't real and I go yeah I actually kind of figured that out and was telling everyone and Lisa was like I thought she was going to start a change.org petition about it I mean she was livid she came up to me and was like are we rioting in the streets I go you know the birthday girl's paying for all the drinks so what what can we do like we're drinking for free let's just do it but there was a friend of yours I met him that night but he is a bar owner and he said if someone came to my bar ordered tequila rocks I would not say try this drink I would go oh we're actually beer wine only yeah 
Because his bar is beer and wine only. Yeah. And then you can pick one of the fake cocktails. But to not say it outright is strange. That is like true tricker. That is rude. That's fucked up. I think they are trying to pull one over a little bit because also it is an amazing vegan. The menu is so good. Like the food is really good. They've got like, you know, like burgers and wings and all kinds of stuff that's that's fake meat. But it's not that's not explicit either. Like it's not like. 100% plant-based. You know what I mean? So it's a little sketchy. Anyway. Because the other place they own is good. What's the other place? I heard they own Wolfie's as well. Yes. But Wolfie's doesn't have alcohol, I don't think. Yeah, they do. They have beer and wine that you can take to the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it says plant-based all over it. I don't understand. And it's not a real sports bar. Like, Because then I went to Yelp. I did not leave a review. But I just wanted to see what was going on. And... um. People were like, there's like weird TV. It's like people that don't know sports pretending it's a sports bar. It's like sports cosplay. I don't know. It is. Well, I will never go back. I will never go back. It's a ton of different. Well, we go back with our kids all the time. I like that place. I'll continue to go because I don't care about sports either. No, but you're right. I would. But if they just said that to me, I would have just been drinking wine. I'm just usually not a wine or beer drinker. But if they just said, actually, these cocktails aren't real, I'd go, okay, I'll take wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's weird because I, ha- I I could tell because I ordered the mule and I was like, this is not vodka. Like, I can just tell. Like, I'm so, just a trusting person. I would yeah. never be like, they're fooling me. <laughs> but then this is what is heartbreaking is like, you think deep down, like, maybe I'd be a great detective. Put me on the force, Mariska. And then it's like, I'm the worst detective of all time. I'm sipping this <laughs> pina colada without an ounce of liquor in it being like, love it. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. Crossing that off of the list of places to have Lisa's birthday this year. Okay. (laughs) Let's get into today's episode. We got a good one. Okay. Let's get going. Loophole, baby. This is season eight, episode 13. So season eight, I always think of as a good one. It's when I believe it's the season that Mariska Hargate has her baby or gets or is pregnant for part of it. I don't know, but I do know that this um, thumbnail on Hulu is always striking. I always see the mom's face. I I just I see her face always. And so it lives in my brain because I'm always passing her face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this opening has stuck with me for a long time. So let's get into it. (laughs) And Um, it's a star studded opening. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You don't even know who those people are. It's Goldberg. No. No. From the WWE. That's a rest. That's that's Goldberg. Yeah. Lisa. In. Okay. In my notes, I literally wrote a WWE reference, not even having any idea that that's a WWE person. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. This is crazy. And I then no the little idea. boy or teen, he is from The Wire. The messenger kid? Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. Well, that's why it was less star studded for me, but now it is. Okay. So we open on the guy from The Wire, a young boy, a young man, uh, getting out of an elevator at the precinct with an envelope marked special victims unit. And as soon as he gets off the elevator, this huge white guy is like growling, fully tweaking. Finn and Stabler are on either side of him. And he's like so massive, this guy that he just kind of like, he, he just pushing the young guy, messenger guy out of the way, not him against a wall and just fully knocks him out. That's like, you're supposed to know that's how strong he is. No idea that this is 
Goldberg. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. A Jewish wrestler? Yeah. Oh, I love I, it. I wonder if it was a Jew character. He is Jewish. I think he's Jewish. Okay. I think it's a big deal and he's Jewish. I don't know. <laughs> it would actually be kind of weird if he was Goldberg and not a Jew. The, yeah. A strange <laughs> choice. Yeah, for sure. So he somehow like shakes off Finn and Stabler and hurls an enormous bench through a window. So we know that this guy is like superhuman strength and Cragen mentions that he's on PCP and this, oh, like in the back of my mind, I always think, oh, like people get super strong when they're on PCP because of the opening of this episode, like that it gives you superhuman strength. Uh, and he keeps screaming, I'm coming for you, Barbie. But like earlier, Stabler was like, well, you raped Barbie. And so it's very scary that this man thinks he's like in love with this woman that he sexually assaulted. Stabler hits him in the head with a fire extinguisher and you think it's going to be one of those like birds going around the head moment and he's going to collapse. No, the fire extinguisher does literally nothing. This man is a movie character and he's like, how dare you hit the erotic God of love? So he believes he's some kind of. Well, he's also on drugs. I also want to know what the fire extinguisher is made out of. Oh yeah. It made a really big doink when it hit the. That could be fully, but they can't hit him with the real one. So is it slow? Or is like, but it looked real. Yeah. So is it acrylic? Like, what is it? Yeah. That's a great question for when we finally interview the prop master. So this man is very scary because like it's starting to feel like nobody can stop him. And then he, he and you know, if this was real life, he'd already be shot a long yeah, time ago. For sure. They, they handle this in a way that is like, is this just how you handle white people? Because he fully tosses Stabler through plate glass like he's flicking a booger off his hand, like nothing. And then he puts a chair through another window. So much broken glass in this man's wake. And then Benson just shows up super calm, looking gorgeous with a taser. And then she's like, you better stop. And he's like, you're just jealous of Barbie's beauty, which is hilarious because she looks like Mershka Hargitay. And she tases him for a really fucking long time. And we're like, okay, he's down. Olivia has done it. No, this man is like the energizer tweaker. He can still keep going and he starts to get up again. And Finn, this is what I wrote in my notes. Finn takes him down with a folding chair to the head like this is WWE Smackdown. That's a meta moment. They knew what they were doing. They knew what they were doing. I didn't know what they were doing. And now hopefully you guys listening know what they were doing. Because Lisa has the WWE tea that I do not. Although I did work at the USA Network for a spell, so I did get to meet like Triple H and a couple of um, love Triple H. Uh, they sent me to a laundromat to dry his um, clothes one time because he had did like a water stunt, and they were like, "We need these back. Go dry them." And I was like, "All right," running around Stamford, Connecticut. Well, this is a drinking moment for anyone listening. That is Kara mentioning another job. <laughs> Dry cleaning oh, yeah, Triple true. H's outfit. I forgot that's on our drinking game. Go I, to the kitchen, pour a little tequila, yeah, a little shot ski. So. This guy's finally been subdued. Elliot has a very deep cut in his arm and they're taking him to Bellevue. And meanwhile, after all the dust settles, Cragen finds the envelope that this young uh, messenger was carrying. And inside are some photos of a little boy in his underwear and a memory card with a note that says, please put this sick bastard away. And that's the cold open. Top of act one, Stabler's in the hospital, shirtless, of course. And Olivia's like at his bedside. And I I was wondering, like, do you think all cops rush to their partner's bedside at the hospital for like cuts in their arm? Or is this just Hmm. a Stabler-Benson thing? No, because remember in like Buffalo or Syracuse or something, a bunch of cops knocked down an old man and he hit his head. And then they were going to get in trouble and all the cops walked out to say, hey, we can push any men we want to the ground. So if they support each other for like hitting old men, I feel like they would 
I think they are dramatic. I think they're like soccer players. Yeah. We re-risk our lives. Like, I think they're soccer players and they would visit each other and okay. massage each other and shit. Okay. She seems real pressed at his bedside like he has a bad diagnosis. And I think it's just- You're underestimated. There were more than one cut. It could have cut of artery. He did lose some blood. Okay. All right. I just don't think- I'm like, why is Kathy not there? You know what I mean? But it's I agree with that. <laughs> OK, <laughs> but it was someone. Uh, yeah, because she could bring the kids. Yeah. Five kids to the hospital. Or maybe they haven't even had the youngest one yet. Anyway. OK, so the doctor explains that you're right. It's more dramatic than I thought. Stabler has narrowly missed some serious damage and like, you know, inches away from the radial nerve or whatever it was, something that would have caused a lot of bleeding and, and probably permanent damage. So he narrowly missed that. And of course, he's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's just a flesh wound. And it's like, dude, you'll be ready for work when the doctors say you're ready for work. He's like, I'm getting back into the saddle. And they're like, no, you're not. And then Cragen is like. That puts him on the DL and I don't know what DL means. And I Googled it. I Googled DL with cop lingo and stuff like that. And all I was getting was deputy lieutenant and other shit that doesn't work or driver's license. So mm. I don't know if you know what disabilities. DL yeah. Oh, d oh yeah. Disability leave. Yeah, that might be it or something. Okay. Um, Finn is talking to the kid who got knocked out from the wire. And he's like, a guy on the street gave me 50 bucks to deliver this package. They take the 50 from the poor kid, which I feel bad. And they test it for fingerprints, but they get nothing. Um, and they're trying to figure out who this like anonymous tipster is. And why didn't he just give the perpetrator's name? Why is he making them go on like a wild goose chase scavenger hunt of, of clues? And Olivia is like, oh, when I worked in computer crimes, which I don't remember. When she worked in computer crimes, she's like, they discover, oh, maybe, is that what she did when she left to be pregnant? Well, yeah, there was the eco-terrorism, but I do remember her being like, I'm sick of Stabler, I need a break, and yeah. then she comes back. But I thought that she was working in counter-terrorism when she did that. Yeah, I don't know. I gotta look it up. All right, anyway, I'm sure someone's gonna yeah, let us know us and be like, you, you're dumb. Um... So she's like, oh, when I was in computer crimes, they use digital recovery software to recover deleted files that might work on the memory card. And so we go to Teru and it's very funny how many of you have messaged us being like, I was today years old when I realized that Teru is not a person. It is technical assistance response unit. We've talked about it before. And uh, Ruben Morales is helping them go through the recovered photos, but it's just a bunch of photos of a door being installed. But Eagle Eye Olivia catches the glimpse of a truck passing by for Empoli Bakery. This is like all a lot of rigmarole just so they can get to this building. Uh, but like Finn goes on a ride along with the bakery truck and then he spots the building and then he gets there and Livia's there and they have donuts that the bakery driver gave them. And then they, they see all these little kids going into the building and this kid's like, yo, can I have a donut? And I love that kid. Yeah. To ask a random cop for a donut. You're cute. You're funny. You've got chutzpah. I like it. His name is Kevin and he's no longer part of the episode, but I like him. And now this guy who was walking all the kids into the building has like a Q-tip and this, he's an iconic character from this episode. I always think of this episode as like, oh yeah, the one with like the tweaker that's like constantly Q-tipping his ear, like for sure. He is like, yeah, you know, what are you doing? You're not like, and they act like it's a weird thing that the guy's checking up, but I'm like, I think it's normal to see why a random man is giving a donut to a child, right? I'm with him. Yeah, show the badge and then we're okay, but you know. I mean, even then, are we letting cops give donuts to our kids willy nilly? I don't know. He uh, is like, it's about time you guys showed up. We've had so many break ins and he keeps saying the word ridiculous. And you you know that that's going to like come into 
play later because he's just like, this is ridiculous, man. It's so ridiculous, ridiculous. He keeps saying it. And he's like just Q-tipping his ears like that's not in a very insane behavior. Uh, and he said the super's name is Seth Milstead. They go talk to Milstead uh, to ask him about the break-in. And he's like, no, it was a misunderstanding. I got locked out. I had to jack myself in with a crowbar to the room. And while he's giving this whole long story to live, Finn kind of scopes out the place and sees a camera matching the type of camera that took the photos of the boy in the house, like the exact same camera type. So Finn's like, great talking to you, sir. Let us know if you have any more problems. We're leaving. And Olivia with her swoopy bangs is like, what the hell's going on? Why did you pull me out of there? And Finn's like, he's definitely lying. We don't have a warrant. We need a warrant to search that camera. And so whoever broke into this apartment building, they think found the sex abuse images and we got a burglar with a conscience. Okay. And I will just say that they use the term kitty porn in this episode. A thousand times. They just keep saying kitty porn, kitty porn, kitty porn, which we don't we don't say, but I sometimes say it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, we try not to say it on this podcast because we, we no, but say. I'm not, you know, I'm not a robot sometimes, you know, I but I normally say child porn. Kitty porn sounds oh, so yeah. I don't say like, kitty porn. You're kitty right. porn sounds creepy. Like I you're don't, right. I say child. It's porn like you're ta- talking it. about like a fun little ride at an amusement park or something. Yeah, um, but yeah, yeah. So it's a little too lingo. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm not always saying sex abuse images as I should be, but I do say child porn. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, because that's what's tough because I'm watching Drag Race and it is sometimes fun when Michelle's like, you look like a hooker. And it's like, that's fun. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't think that Michelle Visage is disrespectful to sex workers. Right. So it's tough because sometimes it is just um, a good time. Yeah. To say the bad <laughs> words. <laughs> um. So now Finn is giving Craig in the whole rundown. Like we think that somebody broke into Milstead's apartment, found this, uh, these images and took the memory card and blah, blah, blah. Milstead has no record. They ID the kid um, in the pictures as someone who lives in the building named Diego Benitez. Okay. And they go to interview his mom. She works at a food truck. They tell her someone might be abusing your son. And she's like, I'll handle it. And Olivia's like, actually like we handle it. And she They show her the pictures and she immediately like bounces and Finn's like something has spooked her. So we don't know what's up with her, but she knows something. They're still trying to identify who uh, was the anonymous tipster. And they are like, let's go listen to the 911 call. You listen to it. It's a man saying ridiculous over and over again. So, yes, it's the wax man or Q-tip man. I was watching this episode with subtitles on and they were calling him wax man in the subtitles (laughs) the entire time, even after his name is revealed later. So now now they're questioning Q-tip and he's like, I have a cerumen problem, which is another word for earwax, which I'd never heard before this episode. No, it just reminds me of cerulean from Devil Wears Prada. Prada. It's actually cerulean. Well, and I don't know if you noticed this, but someone in this episode later on plays Miranda Priestley's husband. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yep. I knew that guy was familiar. I didn't even have to IMDB that because I was just like, oh, I I have another moment in this episode where I didn't have to IMDB, but I'll get to it. Okay. So we all know about Saruman now and they play the tape for him and he's like, yeah, I was just trying to be a good citizen. And they're like, yeah, you heard a break in five floors up with a Saruman problem. Touche iced tea. I liked that little line. Finn being shady Cragen's like where did you find this looney tune i wanted to point it out i know you like looney tunes I do. <laughs> this guy's name is raymond nesbitt he's got like heroin possession charges on his rap sheet he's got burglary too he went to prison for burglary too he's back 
Uh, and now it's clear that he, this guy Raymond Nesbitt is the one that broke into the apartment and found the pictures while robbing the apartment. And now he's looking to skate on the burglary charge, like hoping to get a deal. Um, I think it's kind of, I don't know. I think this is like an endearing character. He like does heroin and robs people, but he also is in charge of the building's children in some weird way and uh, reports crimes when he sees them. So now they're trying to pitch a deal to Novak that this guy is probably responsible for 10 burglaries that have happened in the building since Raymond got out of jail. And um, he's the only one that can testify to finding the images in the apartment because they can't interview the kid because the mom won't give consent. And Novak is like, I'm worried about this deal. Like if he commits crimes and the media finds out that we had him and we let him go, like, how's that going to look? And so they basically are like, well, if we could find more stuff in Milstead's apartment, let's get a warrant. She's like, I'm going to hit up a judge that has a kid that's Diego's age. I like that Novak's always thinking about how to manipulate judges. I got a judge who stays up late. I got a judge who's got a <laughs> drinking problem. I got a judge who has a kid. You know, she always like knows what's up with that. Um, so next thing we see are the cops busting down Milstead's door. He's denying. He's like, kid in underwear doesn't sound like any kitty porn I've seen. I was like, okay. So then in the next scene, we meet Milstead's lawyer who is the character's name is Chauncey Zirko, and he's played by Peter Rygert, who's a classic SVU lawyer. He's been on seven episodes. I always think I think of him as like a, he's like one of these like eh, lawyers. And uh, he's also in tons of movies and stuff. Do you recognize him from things? No, but it's like he to me would be friends with Buchanan and all the white haired lawyers. Yeah. And the oil tycoon guy that's married yes. to Cindy Lauper. <laughs> like he's in that category. Yeah. The Cindy Lauper husband guy for sure. Yes. Um. He's arguing that like there's nothing sexual in these photos. It's like a kid in their underwear, but there's no nudity. There's no sex acts happening. These are innocent photos. He's like, this is my four-year-old in a two-piece, which is kind of nuts. That guy has a four-year-old child. He looks pretty old. Um, but uh, my dad was 50 when I was born. I know. I'm just saying men can be so much older. Yeah. You know, Novak references U.S. versus Dost, which I looked up and is a United States district court case involving a bunch of nude or semi-nude photos of females ages 10 to 14 that were found in underdeveloped film that was mailed to a processing company in Hollywood, California, baby. And um, this resulted, this case resulted in the DOST test, which is a six factor guideline um, establishing whether photos of children are considered to be sex abuse images. These six things are whether the focal point is the child's genitalia or pubic area, number one. Number two, whether the setting is sexually suggestive whether the child is depicted in an unnatural pose or in inappropriate attire. Number four, whether the child is fully partially clothed or nude. Number five, whether the visual depiction suggests sexual coyness or a willingness to engage in sexual activity. And number six, whether it is intended or designed to elicit a sexual response in the viewer. And you don't have to hit all six of these for it to be considered. Like sometimes it's only three or whatever, but these are like the criteria for like how a picture of Rosie in the bath is not considered you know, a sex abuse image. So I just thought that was interesting. I'd never heard of the Dost test. And so the judge uh, is not really buying Zirko's uh, pleas that this is an innocent photo. And he's like, I need to hear more from Novak, but he encourages her to get a victim statement. So now this is when Benson gets sent back to Diego's mom. She goes to their apartment. So we find out that the mom, Jennifer, her green card status has been uh, expired. And the reason that she didn't want to cooperate is because Milstead had threatened to get her deported back to Honduras. But Diego was born in the U.S., so she is invested in not leaving. 
Olivia's like, I just want to protect Diego. I'm not here to report you as they always come in and are like, we're not part of ice. We're not part of uh, drug, like drugs. Like we don't care what you're doing. We just care about your kids. So she goes to talk to Diego who looks like he's had a hell of a day in first grade. He is like <laughs> fully wiped and his eyes are barely open. He's like, He's, he's so cute. He's so cute. This like, I don't know what they told this kid to do. This little child actor, like, just be a sleepy little fuck. Cause he's like, <laughs> I don't remember who took the picture. And if someone asked him to pose for it and he's just like fully dr like drifting away. And then Olivia, you see Olivia, like take her jacket off and you see her like blinking her eyes. Like she's very good at, at like ramping up to this. Cause she starts like saying she's feeling hot. The mom goes to get her some water. When she looks back at Diego, he's fully passed out. Benson goes to stand and she is woozy and she looks like she's like, we see her POV a little bit and she looks like she's tripping. Like they're doing weird things with the camera angles. And then we hear a glass break. Olivia makes her way to the kitchen. The mom, Jennifer's passed out on the floor. So now we know something's fucking up. There's like a gas leak in this apartment or something because Olivia is starting to like really get incapacitated. So she gets Diego out of the apartment, then goes back for Jennifer, pulls them both into the hallway all these neighbors come out about the hubbub and Liv is like, get out of the building. I'm a cop. But she can barely talk. But somehow they listen to her. And then Olivia fully passes out against the dirty mailboxes in the apartment building. So what's going on here? At the top of Act 3, Craig and Finn are on the scene. Finn's giving the rundown, very expository to give us the information very quickly. 12 people have been affected by this, including Liv, Jennifer, and Diego, as well as an apartment with three mentally disabled children and their foster parents and another uh, small family was in an apartment. So these people have all been affected by this, um, whatever this mysterious gas or whatever it is, is. Olivia's on some stabler shit, refusing to go to the ER. And Cragen's like, uh, I know she's not saying she's going to go against policy. Take her ass to the hospital and restrain her if you have to. And it's like, dad has spoken. You're grounded, bitch. Like, you can't go. Daddy Craig's. Yeah, daddy Craig's. It is really wild because, uh, you know, sometimes I'll mention SVU and I'll meet people out and about. Yeah. That are like, I love SVU. And when I say, guess who we've talked to? No one can really believe it. Really? Yeah. Once you say Craig and they're like, wait. <laughs> what what's going on <laughs> yeah when you people are impressed by craig and, and bd wong well i go in or i i go we got the craigs <laughs> we got diane neal and we got bd wong and then once you say that trifecta they're like they're all in <laughs> yeah yeah that's so funny yeah craig and his beloved i was interested in what his post svu work is and then someone like. i ran into yesterday was like but i felt so sad for him you know he really just wanted the time with the sex workers and they just <laughs> really fucked him over <laughs> Like, yeah. It's so true. He was a very lonely man. <laughs> um, but aren't they all? So, okay. So now we see forensics tech Mike O'Halloran, the very, very cute man, R.I.P. If you don't watch the show regularly, I'm sorry to tell you, he does not make it. Um, he's on the scene, not at the end of this episode, by the way. He he dies in another episode. Um, so he's on the scene telling them that um things would have been a lot worse if Olivia hadn't bit, like broken a window in the apartment and vented it out and gotten everyone out of the building. So um we're kind of flashing back and forth between O'Halloran giving the news to the info to Cragen and Finn and Olivia at the ER getting news from her doctor. So over at the ER, Olivia finds out that there were these three mentally handicapped kids also in the apartment next door who were also exposed to these poisonous vapors and lives like we were poisoned like she I think just thought it was a gas leak. 
O'Halloran is at the scene using a gas sniffer to find out what's up. There was a full, more full name for it, but I'm calling it a gas sniffer. Um, he's in a full hazmat suit while Morales is monitoring him on a, like a screen. And they're finding um, this, this sniffer is looking for volatile organic compounds or VOCs. So as they're sniffing around, like it starts finding all these compounds, the machine's going up and then they discover a huge 95 gallon overpack container that's designed to transport nuclear waste. So not probably on the list of top 10 things you don't want to find in the basement of your apartment building. It reminded me when I kept having carbon monoxide uh, (laughs) alarms going off and then the fire department came, went down to the basement and came up with propane tanks and they go, why are there propane tanks? Oh, this whole building would have exploded. Oh my God. God, it would have exploded. Um, And they put them outside. But still, the the landlord was like, you're overreacting. (laughs) Don't call. Don't call like the gas people. Like, I mean, landlords are truly. I used to try to. Yeah, they're really bad people. Yeah. Yeah. In New York, especially. So uh, the gas sniffer is testing positive for organophosphates which is bad, but it's not like saying exactly what organophosphate is. And then we cut to the doctor at the hospital telling Olivia that her blood work is showing that she's been exposed to organophosphates. So this is all coming together. She's looking kind of panicked and is like, am I going to get better? And she's like, I'm going to give you a shot of atropine, which is an antidote. And then we're going to have to keep you overnight to like monitor, you know, how your blood is doing. And then um, back at the barrels, the chemical is unknown. So they have to call the EPA, the Terrorism Task Force, Homeland Security. Like this is Epa, serious shit. Epa. Epa. Do you know that? No. It's from the Simpsons movie. <laughs> oh, that's cute. Have you never seen the Simpsons movie? No. It's really fun. I bet Rosie would like it. I'm sure I would love it too. Yeah. I it, love the Simpsons. I just don't, I'm not, you know. There's just a thing and it's the, it ends up being the EPA, but um, Epa. Abe has, like the grandpa has a vision from God or something and he keeps screaming, Epa, Epa. <laughs> um, okay. So that's great. Okay. So at the hospital, Olivia wakes up and Jennifer is crying at her bedside and she tells her that they did tests and they found cancer in Diego's blood, which is Uh. so sad and fucked. He's so cute. And um, that's not right. I mean, if he was ugly, it would be fine. Yeah. I don't care. I do not care. No, I'm just saying it. You know, they pick cute kids on purpose for these roles. No. And it's just, it's horrible. It's all child. So O'Halloran explains that they found the same organophosphates on the heaters in all three of the apartments. So they must have been sprayed there. Like this didn't just like seep up through the basement. This was actually placed in these apartments on the heaters. And that when the heat came on, it probably like, you know, turned into gas. And that's like what was affecting all of these people. So now Finn goes to talk to Milstead to find out if he sprayed that shit. And when he shows up to the uh, prison yard, Zirko, the lawyer, is there telling him that there was apparently a big pileup in the yard and Milstead got shivved, so he is dead. (laughs) Unfortunately, or fortunately, because he's not going to end up being a good person. Back at the precinct, Cragen is... This is like a level of soap opera that's so... This is a a pretty soap opera episode because it's going to keep ramping up into uh, fantasticals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But this is like, that guy, he's been shivved. Yeah. It's a fantasy world too, like how this ends up resolving, but it is a Telenovela. Like that's what I... Well... Did you did you clock that when they go back to the precinct, Cragen's folding up a bed in his office? 
He's folding up a full mattress, like on like a rollaway bed, like that you would maybe get at a hotel no. and a pillow. Cause Cragen doesn't sleep in the crib with the riffraff detectives. He gets sleeps in his own office in a bed. Wow. But yeah. he could have gone home. Well, that's the thing. They never go home. Go home to what? The bottle? <laughs> no. He, 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 his wife is dead. I bet you Cragen has a cat. You think at home? That yeah, feels to me like, like maybe a, a, a kid from the building feeds it. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not going to be home again, Sammy. Can you go next door and feed mittens? That's what's happening. Oh, our friend just got a cat named Gloves. Who? Marsha. Oh, that's cute. She's funny. But I text her being like, hey, I'll come over during, you know, and meet mittens. And she's like, it's actually Gloves. It's Gloves. <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny. Shout out Marsha. To those of you who don't know, she is the creator singer of the hit TikTok 100 Tampons. Tampons. Which I sing to myself all the time. I know. And they said, will that be, be enough? enough? <laughs> <laughs> Go Google 100 tampons. It's a very funny song. So uh, after he folds up his bed, he's basically telling Finn Homeland Security and the feds, which he calls them the Fibbies. I'd never heard that before. He's like Homeland Security and the Fibbies have taken away this case. And so they want us to give all the kitty porn stuff that we have on Milstead. And like I said before, they say kitty porn way too much in this episode. So Liv shows up looking stunning in scrubs. And she's like, so it's just over. Like, what the hell? You guys are just going to give the case to the federal authorities. And like, I don't get to find out what happened to me. And Munch shows up uh, like, check out what I found. And um, they start looking at these tapes that he's found in Milstead's apartment of him interviewing Diego, giving him these words to memorize. Like the word of the day is apple, elephant, whatever. I know it's like a relief. This kid's not being molested, but then it's like, what the fuck is it's, going on? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, what's going on? What's this? It's not like, tutoring him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't think this is a head start program going on in the super's apartment. So he is giving him words to memorize and asking him about school and stuff. And Diego looks really kind of like he can't remember anything. And then at the end they go, what are the three words? And he tells them like completely different words. So he's obviously affecting his memory. And Milstead's like, great job, buddy. See you tomorrow. Like it's fucked up because he can tell what he's doing is hurting this child, but he doesn't care. And there are 200 sessions of this on these tapes. And then Munch dug even deeper and found out that Milstead's been getting regular checks from a company called EHD Associates, which does uh, research for chemical companies. And surprise, surprise, their office and bank accounts all vanished two days ago. Hmm. Interesting. So Munch explains that a chemical company that's been paying Milstead to test pesticides on Diego and the other kids in the building is basically using them as guinea pigs. And Finn's like calling him the Prince of Paranoia and saying that's probably not what happened. But they're like, well, then why is Milstead listed as a consultant on the check? So now we go to find the ultimate authority, Melinda Warner. She's weighing in and she's like, actually, Munch is right. The government does this shit all the time. They test pesticides on people in Jacksonville, Florida. They were going to test pesticides on people and pay them. But then it was called off when the public and their own scientists were protesting. And after that, the EPA said no testing on pregnant women or children. So how did they get away with this? Apparently, there's a loophole called observational testing, hence the name of the episode loophole. And basically it's like if you're having your place sprayed for bugs or something like that you're allowed to test kids to see how it's affected them i don't really get how that's a loophole it seems like it's just doing the thing that the epa says that you're not allowed to do but maybe because it's like 
I guess you're allowed to just have little tutoring sessions with them every day where you ask them questions and watch their minds deteriorate in real time. Uh, So the photos, it turns out, were not sex abuse images. They were to document reactions, skin rashes, anything that may have caused harm to the boy by coming in contact with these pesticides. And the pesticide manufacturer has to submit all this research data to the EPA for final approval. So now... We're watching the huge tub get removed from the building and Liv and Finn are there with an EPA guy. And he says they have no idea what the chemical is. And the EPA guy is like very sleazy. He's like, we don't know what the chemical is until they're done testing it, which is so that's so fucked up. Like they can't approve it until it's done being tested. But then they can just test it on whoever they want, even if it's very dangerous. It seems very, very fucked up. So he's really kind of sleazy and is like... My hands are clean. And it's like, even though many children have gotten sick, he's like, not my problem. So uh, yeah, they're accusing him of being a dirtbag, which he is. And he's like, there's no way that any of these companies would open themselves up to litigation. And so the residents must have consented in some way. Liv goes to the hospital to see Jennifer, Diego's mom, and is like, did you sign anything? And she's like, I did. Milstead promised me money if I signed. But he told her that it was something to keep roaches away. He never said it was poison. He never said it was pesticide. And um, she's really upset because she has no insurance or money. And now Diego needs chemo. And so this is kind of lighting a fire and live because she's like, this is so unfair. This woman like can't afford child like health care for her child. And this has happened to her. So Olivia and Finn go to the con- go to the apartment. They find the contract that was signed. It's all legal mumbo jumbo. Like no one could be expected to understand it, especially like someone who's like English as a second language. Like it's just very complicated. Uh, and it turns out it's Danforth Chemical who contracted out the research. So Olivia does not fuck around. She goes all the way to the top. She shows up at Danforth Chemical and just walks to the office of the CEO and is like, I need to speak to the CEO of this fucking chemical company. And uh, the lawyer of the chemical company shows up up and he's completely stonewalling her and he calls her miss benson it's very very rude and he is miranda Priestley's ex-husband yeah for a good reason <laughs> um she basically is like you better get out of here miss benson when he knows damn well it's detective benson you dumb fuck okay so now Liv is talking to casey and casey's like you gotta let this go it's gonna ruin your career nothing can be done this is like when someone's like i'm gonna take on Exxon Mobil for spilling oil on the ducks. And people are like, best of luck. You know, you're not going to like they are evil corporations and they get away with everything. We were just talking about how the Purdue family that has gotten everybody addicted to opioids has zero uh, accountability. And they like I think that charges were brought against the company, but not the people who own the company as if as if, again, corporations are people, which they are not. Anyway, Liv is like, Diego has follicular lymphoma. Who's accountable for that? And Casey's like, you're thinking like a victim. You're not thinking like a cop. It's not that simple. And Liv's like, yeah. And what about Tuskegee or Willowbrook? Like, there's all these incidences of these things happening. And she's like, you definitely have to get someone to testify that the pesticide is what caused Diego's cancer. So she goes, obviously, back to our queen, uh, Melinda Warner, who's like, I can't do that. It's impossible to prove. Cancer is very complex, even if you found 10 people in the same building with the same disease, it would be the same story. Because I, I guess it's like correlation, not causation. But it's kind of like Aaron Brockovich. Wasn't like they're poisoning in the water and it wasn't until it was like a full town of people were they able to bring a class action suit? Yeah, and now look at this guy. Yeah. Look at Eric Girardi now. Yeah, look at Tom Girardi. <laughs> Tom. <laughs> I combine them. <laughs> and maybe in that case too, they can't even bring criminal charges. It can only be civil where it's for money, you know? Anyway... 
Liv is at the precinct at night, burning the midnight oil. Stabler Waltz is in, defying doctor's orders. He's supposed to be off duty for two weeks or something. And then he gives her this little pep talk, you know, like he thinks that the fight that she's doing is like worthy and worthwhile. But she, uh, she's like, I don't even know what made me sick because it's proprietary information. Like, I don't even know where to start. And he's like, there are ways to find out. You got to fight dirty. These guys are fighting dirty. You got to get down in the mud with them. Kind of cute. A cute little pep talk from Stabler. So Liv goes to the man Teru himself, Ruben Morales, to ask for a sketchy favor. And this was very born identity. So that's what I was exactly <laughs> thinking. Oh my God. It was, I was like, this is full movie magic that's going on here. Um, he's very resistant. You can tell he is a rule follower. And he was like, do you think this is worth losing our jobs and going to prison? And she's just like, I totally get it if you say no, but let's go after these fucking child poisoning fucks. And so cut to Ruben and Olivia in a bathroom stall together in the men's bathroom at Danforth Chemical. They're like spies in a bathroom stall together and setting up a laptop. And they're basically about to hack into the Danforth chemical, like internet computer system. And she's like, look up any experimental pesticides in the testing stage. I love how he can do that in one second. Like, I just know exactly where they keep all that information, but they have. Yeah, I'm the best at this job in the world. And I'm working at a police department. So true. Uh, I like there's always, there's always commercials that are like, help us find hackers, join the U.S. Army. And it's like, I think if you're a, a really good hacker, you're not joining the U.S. Army, but maybe. Um, so he hacks into the system, but they have, quote unquote, wireless intrusion detection. So they know that they've hacked in. And this is like this fully fake computer system where it alerts the person who's doing the breaking in how close they are to getting caught. It's like there's a level that's like, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. We're about to find you. You better get out of here. So I understand how they're doing that because it's like illustrating it for us, the viewers. But it's very funny how that's not real. I wrote OK Jan in my notes. So... Really quickly before he uh, shuts it down, he sees that the chemical awaiting approval is called Zilithion. And then, you know, at that exact moment, they shut the laptop and they get the hell out of there. And Ruben goes first and then Liv is leaving. And as she's exiting the men's room, two security guards come running into the men's room because I guess they've pinpointed the hack from coming inside the men's bathroom. And uh, when they bust in, she's like, sorry, I thought this was the ladies room. It's very funny. It lived to me where she's like, oh, hi, guys. Sorry, I thought I was in the ladies room. And now we cut to a scene where Munch and Liv barge into the CEO's office. And this is pl- the CEO is played by Ray Wise, who I did not have to Google because he has haunted my dreams forever. He plays Laura Palmer's father, Leland in Twin Peaks. Oh, is he a bad guy? He's haunting. just a haunting person in that show. He's going completely insane over his daughter's death. And it's so scary. And he's just scared me forever. So when I see him, sometimes he he's usually playing bad CEO type guys. But if he plays a nice character, I'm like, I'm not buying this. This is Leland Palmer. So I don't want to give anything away in case someone hasn't seen Twin Peaks. But if you know, you know. Um, So they cuff him in front of his whole. It's the typical. We're cuffing him during a board meeting. You know, he's in front of a tons of people. They cuff him and arrest him for 12 counts of assault. They take a mug shot. They throw him in a holding cell with riffraff. It's like the whole dog and pony show of like, you're in trouble. And then his lawyer shows up mentioning that there's a media circus outside. And um, he demands to see the ADA. And Casey shows up and is like, you rang. And she's a very confident because she's like, the DA has signed off on all of this and basically confronts him. And he's like, I've done nothing wrong. And 
She's like, the release that you made these people sign calls the chemical a drug. It's not a drug. It's a chemical that's been untested, you know? And then the apartment with the three uh, mentally handicapped kids and the foster parents said that they didn't even sign the release. So that's double illegal. Uh, we subpoenaed your IT department. Hope we don't find any embarrassing fetish porn on there. Big bye. No, they basically are like, hope we don't find any incriminating emails. And then... Basically, Casey is like, you got to agree to our terms, pay lifetime medical expenses for Diego and everyone in that building. I wonder if that includes Olivia. And we drop charges and we say that you're cooperating and we get the media circus to go away. In the next scene, Olivia is talking to Jennifer, basically saying that it worked. They're going to have all of Diego's medical expenses covered, which is great. But they should also have extra money. Like yeah. it shouldn't just be for medicine. It should be like a blanket. Yeah, like ten million. Yeah, so like get some real estate going, a trust forever. Like just medical is the bare minimum these people can do. I know. So basically, they tell Jennifer she has to sign a gag order so she can never talk about this, so she can never go back and sue for more money, like what you're talking about. And that don't worry, Diego will be taken care of. And then Liv kind of walks off and glances at another child whose life she's changed. And then, baby, that's Dick Wolf. It's really a great idea that one cop can take on a chemical company. (laughs) I don't know how realistic it is, but. No, when they go to like Hungary to stop human trafficking. Yeah, like (laughs) they just do these things where, you know, with uh, I'm going to the Congo and I'm going to stop rape forever. Um, (laughs) I like it. But sometimes I don't. This is a really good episode, though. I'm going to the Congo to stop rape forever. Anyway, I know this is based on a lot of true stuff happening. So excited to get your info. Thank you. Listen to our ads and we'll see you soon. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s like lavish estates and gardens and of course little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough you can make it into the detective club and there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. All right. Um, So this I always enjoy is when Benson or SVU mentions the cases in the episode. It makes things um, a lot more simple. So we'll talk about the two cases that Olivia Benson mentioned, which is Tuskegee, the syphilis experiment, 
And then the other case is Willowbrook State School hepatitis outbreak studies. So those are the two. I've heard, I've obviously heard of Tuskegee. I've never heard of the second one. So I'm excited. Syphilis and <laughs> hepatitis. Um, you know, interesting <laughs> to talk about these just with, you know, the anti-vax movement. Yes. Not, yes. Oh, God damn it. Okay. So Tuskegee syphilis. Um, So for 40 years, the United States Public Health Service conducted a study in which humans with syphilis were induced to serve as guinea pigs without actual treatment for the disease. So uh, it's really fucked up. So the experiment is called the Tuskegee study, and it began in 1932 with 600 black men, mostly poor and uneducated uh, men. And they were from Tuskegee, Alabama, which had the highest rate of syphilis in the nation at the time. The study ended around 1972 and is one of the most horrific examples of unethical research in recent history. Wow. But what's uh, very cool is I was reading articles from like the 70s and shit like that. Oh, really? Um, Where they've just been like scanned in from old newspapers. That's cool. Yeah. You can look at like that, like a microfiche style or just like mm. read it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> if you really want it. Um, so I miss microfiche. I really liked doing that. Of course. I miss going to the library, studying index cards yeah, for the yeah, bibliography. Yeah. Like, totally. I do miss the, the renting those little study room glass fish tanks. Do you think that's like over? I mean, kids don't do bibliography cards anymore or microfiche. I mean, it, everything's Google Classroom and like. Yeah, but, you know, there were. We have a lot of journals. I'm sure they'll tell us. Like are these are they just Google? I don't know. It is weird. I miss the encyclopedias and learning. Yeah how to look for stuff. <laughs> I, I liked, I liked uh, going to the, my local library. Uh, this, and they do their book program. You get prizes. Okay. <laughs> so syphilis, if you don't know, it's a highly contagious infection spread by sexual contact. I think the, there's a play called ghosts or something. Is it Ibsen? Ibsen, I feel has a play about syphilis. Yeah. Oh, maybe. I think that was his big thing. Um, if it is left untreated, it can cause bone and dental deformations, deafness, blindness, heart disease, and deterioration of the central nervous system. And there is an SVU. Yes, a, a favorite classic. Yeah, where there's a syphilis shout out. So the study was initiated in 1932 by Dr. J.R. Heller, who was an assistant surgeon general in the services venereal disease section, who then became the division chief. Is it fucked up that they used to call them venereal diseases when everybody's getting them? What is that? What is venereal? I think venereal is means vagina, doesn't it? Oh, I thought it's just. Or am I, am I making that up? I don't know. I'm, am I taking a stand for feminism? It's not real <laughs> right now. Hold on. Let me look up. Oh, I guess a venereal disease is any disease that is transmitted by uh, contact. I guess I just thought it was like a, maybe because it begins with a V. I thought it was vaginal. Um... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you, but if I um if Cut all I'm this. ever on America, Cut all this. I don't know what venereal means. Go on. What is not America? If I'm a millionaire match, not millionaire. Who wants to be a millionaire? <laughs> yeah. You'll be in my call list. <laughs> You'll be in my tofona a friend. So 400 men in the group had the disease, but never received deliberate treatment. And then there was a control group of about 200 that did not have syphilis and they didn't receive any therapy. Uh, the study was conducted to determine from autopsies what the disease does to the human body. So because it's an autopsy thing, they needed dead bodies. 
they were trying to see from the inside out what the disease does. So they gave people incentives to enter the program. They were promised free transportation to and from the hospital, free hot lunches, free medicine for any disease other than syphilis, and free burial after the autopsy was performed. So they wanted dead bodies, like I said. So they told some men that they were receiving treatment, but didn't treat them so they could see the disease take its course. (gasps) The study began 10 years before penicillin was found to be a cure of syphilis and 15 years before the drug became widely available. But within that time, like even after penicillin became common and its use could have helped or saved so many of the subjects, the drug was denied from them, which is clearly a serious moral problem. Um, so yeah, one of the articles from 1972 was like the members of Congress reacted with shock to the news. And I'm like, I don't believe it. <laughs> I think I thought this was like different. I, I knew that it was really bad and that it was like mistreatment of, of like poor black people, but I didn't really realize that it was like, Hey, we're going to tell you we're treating you. I didn't realize the psychological fucked up, fucked up part of like, we're going to, you think you're being treated right now, but really we're just waiting for you to die. Yeah. And the research was saying like, this is all obviously born out of like hundreds of years of racism too because it's like at the time people were like black people are inferior to us so we can do whatever the fuck we want to yeah them, you know yeah because um, this that doesn't have to do with this but modern gynecology was invented by doing unethical horrible experiments and torture on black women so it's nothing new and unfortunately we'll get to it but it has not ended and like the rates yeah. of black people dying and not being listened to by um by the medical profession is rampant and this has repercussions that last till today because yes. people like like a lot of black communities have felt skeptical about the vaccine because of the way that they've been treated by state run health care before. You know? Yeah. And the only thing I could say there is like if they're giving it to the whites. So we're all getting it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but they have the right to be skeptical. Right. Uh, what if yeah. I said no? No. <laughs> So 1969 study of the 276 untreated syphilis patients that participated showed that seven died like of direct results of the disease of the original four. A lot of these numbers don't match up. I'm just saying what I what I found of the original 400 men, 154 died of heart disease that they say they can't directly connect to syphilis. But 30.4 percent of the patients examined at autopsy had syphilitic involvement of the cardiovascular or the central nervous system was established as the primary cause of death. So how is that not causation? How they don't want to. Yeah. They don't want to. I can't wait for your brother to listen. I think I'm saying big words that he might be impressed by. (laughs) Oh, Colin. But they don't know where everyone went. And like some people dropped out of the site and then some people put like new people came into the experiment. And so if they use that percentage with the overall number, it would be like 100 plus people were dead. God. At least 28 men used in the study died, but numbers could be, like I said, as high as like 100 and something. Um, And it's annoying. Some doctor was like, "Um, I'm excuse me. It's not like they were denied drugs. They were just not offered drugs. So annoying. Um, They could have been given antibiotics. They were not. People needlessly also passed the disease on to family members who suffered and died as well. So there were like a lot of people that died of late effects, spread it to family members. They died. I mean, it's like yeah. really fucked up. One scholar about the study said that this revealed more about the pathology of racism than it did about the pathology of syphilis, which is true. 
And clearly this created a distrust between black Americans, like we mentioned, and the medical establishment, which leads like it led to black men um, avoiding care, which creates more problems down the road. And there's a decrease to life expectancy. Yeah. Black men and men of color um, have lower life expectancies. Mm -hmm. And this is could be a part of that. <laughs> Fuck Fully. that. Yeah. Yeah, and this is the causation thing. Like people can't admit that it was this one thing. And so. Well, this we'll among many, this among many things, I'm sure. I mean, black women are constantly told, like, I just from a personal, like, where, it, like, as someone who's given birth, I've like, feel like I'm always listened to by my doctor and stuff. And I know black women do not feel the same way. I've talked to many black women about it. No. And I actually just talked to a friend yesterday. She had some ovary type problems, uterus stuff. She went in for just a normal procedure. It was supposed to be better in two weeks. After two weeks, she goes, the pain's actually getting worse. And they're like, you're fine. We'll up the meds. She goes, something's fucked. And they were like, eh. And so then she waited another week, she called back and they're like, we won't. And she's like, I'm in pain. I am coming in. And finally, on the fourth week, they let her come and she had a 10 inch abscess or 10 inch set, like, centimeter, like a I've whole heard that story 20 times. And all of a sudden I mean, they're like, OK, so we need to rush you to the ER immediately. And it's like, go fuck yourself. Yeah. I've heard that story so many times and it's like, oh yeah, like a surgeon left a sponge inside of them or like something went happened. I mean, the, doctors deny women's pain all the time, but black women more. A hundred percent. I mean, Serena Williams, Beyonce, like yeah. it's not even just economically like disadvantaged yeah. people. It's right. truly like rich, the most famous, successful black women in our country were not listened to and yeah. were put in danger while they were giving birth. They're just, uh, and I'm someone that is a psychopath at, that <laughs> like is like, I definitely had problems where I thought I had all these issues and I kept going to my gyno and she's like, nothing is wrong. <laughs> and I don't know if I can keep helping you. So I understand there's people like me. Right. But that is part of the job. Right. You know yeah, what I mean? You like to... you can't not listen to others because there's Looney Tunes in the, <laughs> in the bunch. Like. Ugh, okay. So, but like I said, so the New York Times said that we should still be wary in connecting the two without a clear causal link. To do so, I mean, obviously, I'm reading this word for word. These are not words I use. So, to do so compounds mistrust in the healthcare system. So, I don't know what that means. Say it again, the whole thing. But the New York Times said that we should still be wary in connecting the two without a clear causal link. To do so compounds mistrust in the healthcare system. And, yeah, they're saying like, that we got to be careful. We shouldn't actually say that Tuskegee caused this uh, like black male mortality thing because then people will stop trusting. And it's like, but that's exactly what fucking happened. Like they're saying downplay it. I think they're saying don't call that out because that's just gonna make more people distrust it. Wow. OK, but. And then an article from 2016 says that the researchers did find a large spike in mistrust in black people towards the medical profession right when that happened. Like there was a spike. Mm -hmm. But yeah, because then it causes more. It's kind of there's something about pain that reset, like talking about how crazy the COVID test or something is like could stop people from wanting to do it. Was yeah. That yeah. Like downplay or do, like downplaying the I, I tried to downplay like my like I felt sick the day I got the second shot, but I wasn't like, oh, it's pretty bad. Like when people do that, I'm like, but I, I'll always go. But worth it. Right. To not die like of COVID. Like, yeah. Um. So, yeah, basically people are like, fuck you, medical people. And then they don't go and then it fucks up people's lives even more. And the studies show that the closer to Tuskegee were, the greater effect of mistrust became. But then this is this bitch. I love her. So this is a historian in medicine and science. Her name is Alice DeGregor. Mm hmm. 
And she said, in quotes, African-Americans who distrust the healthcare system see plenty of reasons all around them to do so. They don't have to look back 40 years. Boom. And that's that, you know? That is that on period. So it doesn't matter if that's what it was or not. It's just like what this is, is there's so many examples of disparities that are systemically there, even without Tuskegee. Yeah. Yeah. So legit black American patients tend to receive lower quality health services, less likely to receive treatment for cardiovascular disease. And they are even more likely to have unnecessary limb amputations. What is that? Christ. Uh, Who's like so blasé to amputate someone? Um, Needless suffering has been caused by provider racism by not giving black patients appropriate care and pain medication. And the effects keep going on. And I wish we could have moved further from Tuskegee. I mean, I don't think they can do what they did, but. But this, I mean, this episode is like, obviously it's fake television, but this episode, like that's it. Like Diego and his mom are Latino. Like yeah. they keep calling it like a slum. Cause it's like in a bad part of the city or like a low income part of the city. So like, they're not, yeah, they're not testing these, these the chemicals out on like park Avenue. No. And we don't know what's happening in like the fucking camps where they're holding Mexican people oh, that cross yeah, the, border. the border. They're sterilizing people. We don't know what is happening. And there's like so much um, information about what they did to Native American people. And I don't really, I wish I could have an ending where it's like, and then everyone got sued and got money and we're <laughs> taken care of and reparations for all. Yeah, and right, everyone right. can go to the doctor. <laughs> but it basically just ends on, um, so there's lots of suffering and there, the there will be. trash. Yeah. So that's uh, Tuskegee. And then uh, the next case Benson mentioned, like I said, was Willowbrook State School Hepatitis Outbreak Studies. Okay, yeah. So this I don't know shit about. Your hair looks amazing. Oh, thanks. Okay, so this is a story (laughs) about children with developmental disabilities being held under brutal conditions in Staten Island. God, this when when was what? So sorry. Tell me the year. So the state school opened October 1947. Okay. And it started by admitting 20 mentally disabled patients and in a short time grew so much and it was very understaffed. And by 1955, it had reached its full capacity at 4,000 occupants. And around this time is when there was like this hepatitis infection outbreak. And we'll get to it. But this place sucked. So these people were left unattended, naked, in rags, some were strapped to beds, chairs, left in filthy fucking locked wards, constant neglect. Many parents dropped off their kids and never came back. And this was in the woods, um, you know, very, very woodsy area. No one could go there. So it's like out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. I think if you had um, a kid with special needs, you just you were like, I don't need this. And you dumped them. But they also promised a high level of care. So it's tough. But my um, brother, his son is severely mentally disabled. And. He's been a. I mean, this is. I mean, this case is what it is. But like, they put him in a special place, and then they found out that he was being tied to his chair and desk and put <sighs> in a closet. Oh my god! And now he's in a full care facility, and you know they visit him once a week. But it's like it's fucked up. He's yeah. not treated well, right? So yeah, and I think it was like a source of shame. Like I don't think people want. I don't know. People yeah. just dropped off their kids and were like, "Peace the fuck out." Yeah. So um. 
you know, these people, mentally disabled people were left to huddle in rooms, moaning and meandering. They were naked because there was lack of clothing and supervision. Some sat in their urine, feces. Um, a lot of shit was smeared on them. The walls, clothes, just shit everywhere. It smelled. Yeah. There was rampant sexual and physical abuse at the hands of fellow patients and employees. Very common. Uh, the staff would, uh, like, if you were to check in for mental status, they would choose idiot, moron, or imbecile. Like, that's how official paperwork was. Like, What's this the difference between an idiot and a moron? <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. But those are, like, the things that people, oh like, the nurses God. are, like, writing that. Yeah. By 1969, Willowbrook reached its peak at 6,200 patients. And it was the That's just too many patients. <laughs> yeah. In any facility. Yeah. That's too many. Yeah. 6,200? That's a stadium. Yeah. A small stadium. A small. Right? A theater. That's a, I'd be happy to get that many people out to one of our shows, you know. 6,200? Like, <laughs> like all state. Have you been to all state arena? It's no. Like, that's, no, maybe that's bigger. You're right. I, it's a small theater. <laughs> a big theater. I can only speak in venues. <laughs> it's a lot of people. It was the largest mental institution in the U.S. with the most deplorable living conditions. Ugh. Robert F. Kennedy once visited there and he said it borders on a snake pit. And he made all these statements and stuff. And that was the first time Willowbrook got some national attention. So 1972, people were like, wait, what is this? Because Kennedy yeah. went to visit. And it was on Staten Island. Mm -hmm. And then in 1975, you're going to be shocked. Geraldo Rivera snuck in to building six with a cameraman and they got evidence on how horrible it was. And that's the footage that kind of like uh, went wild. Did that, do you think that's like what blew him up? I don't know. I it blew up this place, mm. uh, but it's, I didn't realize Geraldo has been working so long. Mm. And was he always as unhinged as he is now? Was he always like a, I think he always has been. I, I don't know why. I think we like, we accepted it more back in like the daytime, the daytime. Yeah. Like Sally, Jesse versus Oprah versus Geraldo. We kind of, it was like anything goes. But I think he's always been a nut. <laughs> so he snuck in there. People saw it. They were horrified. So in his videos, people saw middle-aged patients slept on seats. Others crouched and rocked back and forth. Kids without clothes, like I said. Six there were kids? This was a kid's place. So oh. like, what's why? So yeah, people would just drop off their kids. Oh, no, wait. I, I, I Sorry. Obviously, there were kids. But you said middle-aged. Yeah, yeah, people so grew up there. Oh, my God. So you could stay into adulthood. You just yeah. stay there till you die. And I was reading certain stuff. I didn't really put that much information here about it. But there was, like, a woman talking about her mom. Like, there were people. Like, there was a guy. He just had cerebral palsy. But no one knew. So they threw him in there. And he lived, like, 20 years there or something. But he was intellectually on par yeah. and understood and can talk about it. He just had cerebral palsy. Yeah. And so a lot of people were misdiagnosed. So this woman's mom, like, she knew what was happening. And it fucked her up even more because she was treated. So she was there for, like, 16 years. And she lived there, yeah, from 3 to 19. And I'm, like, I'm literally just thinking of American Horror Story Asylum in my head. Like the visuals. This might even be worse. I'd rather some ghosts or something, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, so like there were people there that were just misdiagnosed or like we wouldn't be treating anyone like that today. But yeah, so this woman's mom, like she didn't have any dental care. So she had all these fillings because no one ever took care of her. That She asked for a toothbrush like and she would get beat. I mean, yeah, Ugh. people would beat these people. And um, so... Not that if you didn't understand what was happening, it was okay. But there were people in there that were a full mind. 
like being yeah. uh, just like sitting in feces and being treated terribly. So, so yeah, that's why it's like people got old. Like people just lived there because they were abandoned by families or dropped off. Oh my God. Um, 60% of the population was not toilet trained. Uh, 64% were incapable of feeding themselves. So you have si- over 6,000 people and 64% of those people can't feed themselves. And you probably have a staff of like 200 or something insane like that. Like, yeah. Wow. And like I said, some were, you know, misdiagnosed and the guy with cerebral palsy, he said that he was beaten with sticks, belt buckles, got his head kicked into the wall by staff. Uh. So two months after the special, the Geraldo special aired, the residents of Staten Island filed a class action lawsuit against Willowbrook. Once the conditions were exposed, it led to a landmark case in federal court in 1975. And the settlement stated that New York agreed to move the Willowbrook residents into small group homes. And the woman who was in charge after the lawsuit to move all the patients everywhere was living in a hell because she would try to like disperse this population. And when she would go into a town, people threw eggs at her. One time her nose was broken. Like people did not want the kids with special needs in their town. So this woman was just like trying to find homes for these uh, kids and was getting like beat up and pelted with stuff to get out of my town. Humanity is tough. Well, I mean, in a way, that's the reason why these parents just dropped them off because of the way society treats people that are different. You know, like they were like, if we could just get this, drop our kid off, like we don't want him to die or anything. But if we could just drop him off where he's out of sight, then we can live our lives and no one will will be normal like everyone else. You know. It's terrible. Yeah. And, you know, obviously it's different, but it reminds me of all the like, what is it? The white, nice parents that nice white parents uh, that yeah. are on the Upper West Side that refuse to let their schools integrate. Are we in the 50s? Like, I, I don't understand. OK, so that's all of the background. But you're like, what, where are the experiments? How does this connect yeah. to loopholes? So basically in 1955, before Geraldo, this NYU guy, Dr. Saul Krugman, Krugman, whatever. When there's a bad guy, who cares how you say their name? But some, okay. So Dr. Saul, Saul. Is it S-A-U-L? Yeah. Saul. Saul. Krugman. Yeah. Jewish. Jewish. Dr. (laughs) Saul Krugman. He began using patients as human experiments for the treatment of hepatitis and did it for about 20 years. Krugman deliberately infected the mentally disabled patients with samples of hepatitis synthesized from the stool of six infected patients and incorporated it into patients' food and chocolate milk. Oh, my God. Others were injected and some got it through unsanitary drinking water. Is this this is hepatitis A, huh? I don't know which one. (laughs) A is the one that you get from poop. Okay, then it's got to be this one. He argued that it was the best case scenario for these patients because if they had hepatitis, they got more care and attention um, than if they were in a different ward. Oh, my God. (laughs) This fuckhead, he died in 1995, but he defended his ethics and his studies to the very end. And he was lauded after his death. Like um, when he died, the New York Times and other places were like he's a leader in developing vaccines against measles, rubella. And hepatitis. Rubella sounds like a snack, a Jewish food. What is, you know? <laughs> it's rubella. Rubella. Yeah. Okay, that makes well, sense. measles, mumps, and rubella is MMR, the shot MMR. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he is, I guess, so the New York Times was just like, he did more to develop the measles, rubella? Oh, yeah. 
and hepatitis. Um, but and now I want to call it rubella because that's funny. I know. <laughs> and it's, I want, now I want a fucking rubella. <laughs> and so that was the whole lead to this article. So like he died in this death article, like eight paragraphs were about what a hero he was until they even mentioned any abuse of children. Um, Dr. Wade Parks, who at the time of the death in 1995 was the chairman of the pediatrics department at NYU. He said that Dr. Krugman has done more to eliminate pediatric infectious diseases than any other person ever. So it's tough. Uh, but way down the article, they said his career came under a shadow in the late 1960s after accusations of human guinea pigs. But I guess in 1971, his chief like big critic was this New York uh, State Senate member from Queens, Seymour B. Thaler, and he conceded that the work had been properly done. He said, so then we decided that all the chocolate milk stuff didn't happen. I don't know. He just said that his earlier criticism were from overzealous employees at Willowbrook. Um, and they were the ones that coerced parents into letting their children take part in the project. And so. Yeah. Even if parents give consent, that shouldn't be happening. That's so horrible. It is. And I don't know why he's been like the near like applauded, but I guess it's like the ends justify the means or something. Like, I don't know what philosophy you guys adhere to, but I, I mean, I guess the only thing they could say is that like, maybe like when, if you get hepatitis a, I think hepatitis a is one that's curable and it's kind of like food poisoning. Like you can get hepatitis a, like it's basically like a, a type of, it can be like a food poisoning. Like I remember I went to a restaurant in New York one time and then we got like an email that was like, we have a pastry chef with hep A that tested positive for hep A, but it's like, it goes to what you don't die. Hep B and C are B is I know sexually transmitted, I think. And you can get those. Those are more like they last for a long time and maybe never, maybe they never go away. I have no idea. Don't listen to anything. Yeah. Here. We're Just not doctors. Say. Anyways, this place finally closed in 1987. Oh, the year of my birth took long enough. Um, and the Willowbrook case did help like influence a lot of policies that help the disabled. So like the protection and advocacy system of the developmental, whatever, there's just a lot of shit that happened. That's good. A lot of bills, rights, education for handicapped children, just like a lot of laws were passed in 1975 and the civil rights of institutionalized person act of 1980. So this like horrific case did bring about a lot of like good legislature i guess and now the building is part of the college of staten island and it's like demolish it there's ghosts yeah. what are you doing yeah what the fuck so kids are going to college now in the old shit rooms yeah oh my god so part of the settlement and all this in the lawsuit where the members were supposed to get high quality services for the rest of their lives. And a recent article was talking about how like 2,300 of the alumni that are alive today still suffer mistreatment at whatever place they are. In 2019, there were 97 reported allegations of physical abuse by group home uh, workers against Willowbrook alumni, which is according to internal state data obtained by the New York Times. 34 allegations of psychological abuse and hundreds more for neglect and other mistreatment. And so, yeah, it's like way better than what they did go through. But like I said, with, you know, my nephew and stuff, like people just get treated badly yeah. if people think they can get away with it. No, I mean, there's elder abuse. There's all kinds of in homes of all kinds. Right. There's just bad behavior and treatment. Yeah. So it's like fucked. one retired teacher whose late son, Anthony, was at Willowbrook said now it's just small Willowbrooks instead of one giant nightmare. Yeah. Oh, that's so that's so fucking bleak, baby. Yeah, these are bleak and um, the country's fucked up and no one wants to acknowledge it, banning people from learning about it. I mean, it's like all too much. Yeah, it's been a tough news cycle of late, but we've got a fun interview coming up. 
as usual, we're going to cleanse your palate <laughs> with a fun interview. Yeah, we're like that little mint ice cream thing from the Princess Diaries. You've never seen it? <laughs> oh my God, Rosie will love, we got to watch Princess Anne Diaries. An Anne Hathaway joint, right? It's so good with Julie Andrews, Heather Matsurazzo. Heather Matarazzo, yeah, yeah, I love her. <laughs> I love her. Sandra O. Oh. She's in that? Yes. Oh, yes. Scene, uh, scene stealing performance. They, there's a TikTok of her that went, that went, huge where it's like cupped up and then it's like the queen is coming and it was like huge and i was like what is this from and i googled it and i found out that it was from princess you Diaries. banged again you sorry, sorry you're too excited mandy moore's in it <laughs> oh my god she is yes oh wow is she another princess and uh, is she a rival princess no she plays like a dumb bitch like always oh okay she's like the girl from you know all right let's move it along we're moving it along interview time <laughs> Okay, we're really excited about today's guest. Um, He has been on Lisa's favorite show. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Manifest. And he's also been on Madam Secretary, Bull, The Blacklist, Nurse Jackie. He's working all the time. You can also see him as a series regular on the Emmy-winning drama, The Man in the High Castle. And some of you think that his name is Teru, but he is actually Teru technician Ruben Morales. Guys, please enjoy our chat with Joel De La Fuente. Hello, Joel. Hello. Joel, where are you? Is this like a personal home setup for voiceover work or? or it is. Oh, my gosh. It's so professional. I know. It's, it's very new. It's like, um, I think it's like less than two weeks old. Did you know, Joel, that a lot of people thought that your character's name was Teru? Uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I thought I thought my name was Teru for a little while. <laughs> uh, did you know that my character's name? Uh, when I read for it was Bert Trevor. And then uh, they changed it when I was cast to Ruben oh, Morales. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Bert Trevor is sort of a, that's a kind of a blame. That's name. not a tech name. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sometimes I feel there have been times in my life where I feel very Bert Trevor, but I, I sort of, <laughs> but I aspire to not feel like Bert Trevor. <laughs> and we'll start with loophole. Um, we got to know the fact. So how was shooting in that bathroom stall with Mariska? Is it a set? Is it a real bathroom? The pressure was on. Um, how was it filming that scene? You, you pretty much nailed everything about it. I, I, it, it, it was, um, there was a lot of pressure, you know, I, I rewatched the episode and when that part came on, cause I didn't remember anything about the episode. So I was watching it like, Oh, right. Amazing. <laughs> like this. And then that scene came on. At the end, and I, I had a visceral reaction uh, of just tension and nerves because I remember, and this is off, but this was often the case. Um, you know, they, you're shooting a lot of pages every day, and they needed to get that fast. Uh, I feel like it was um, not a real bathroom, if memory serves. Like I think it was, it was built, but it was built. We were on location, I think, somewhere, and they'd built a bathroom somewhere else. So we needed to get it, and we needed to get it fast. And having Mariska really close in this tight room, I think I was nervous. And so when I when I watched it, I was like, God, I'm so nervous. Like, I'm legitimately nervous. I was watching myself <laughs> and, and um, you know, it was just one of those situations because you're you're suddenly out of your normal way of doing things. And you're it's like if all of a sudden we were standing in this booth together, like suddenly it's just you're, you're very close. And, you know, 
But I think the nerves probably played into it in a good way because your character is kind of like a rule follower. And like Benson's like, come on, just break the rules with me this one time, you know? And so your character is nervous. And so yeah. it probably is good that you were a little bit nervous. Yeah. And, you know, strangely, like when I watched that, I suddenly was like, oh, th this sort of ties in in a weird way. There's a later episode where you know, Ruben goes way off the rails and yeah. he beats up this pedophile. Right. So and and I and, and it's Mariska who he says to her, are you going to turn me in? And she doesn't say yes or no. But I, I thought back to this episode and I was like, oh, she owes me one. You know, <laughs> you, so you know true. it's like she looked out for me in that later episode and I sort of look out for her in this one. That's beautiful. So. Yeah. You've been in like 50 plus episodes of the show are there any that were your favorite or do they all sort of blend together or any like specific that stick out as like a particularly good memory or interesting memory you, you know it, it's funny how it can be both things at once like it can be a it, it can be a total wash like when I when I started watching loophole for example I was like it's so weird that I don't have any memory of this like it's <laughs> you know because you you spend 10 years like working on something and when you lose the specifics of certain things, it's always a little bit of a surprise. But also, I have a lot of really specific memories, uh, a lot of really positive memories uh, and episodes like um, there's an episode called 911 that was it was just me and Mariska pretty much. And uh, that was that was just fun because, you know, so much of the time there are so many people working um, together to try to make something work. There's so many locations, so, so much amazing crew, so many cast members coming in and out. And when you could focus in very simply, you could get a, you could sneak like a, a few, you know, a few days to just sort of focus very intent, intently and simply on location and everything else. Just focus on what it is that you're trying to achieve story-wise. That was fun because we got to, you know, got to relax into it a little bit. We got to spend a lot of good time together. Uh, so that was yeah. Cool. That's a lot of people's favorite episode. Neil Bear told us he loves it, and you know, Mershka won her Emmy. And do you think it's that? It's the stripping down and. The focus or what do you think makes people love that episode so much? I think it's one of those episodes where you've earned a pause. So like if you take a lot of pauses, you know, then people are like, oh, this is this is indulgent. You're taking too much time. But if if you pick it wisely, you know, and the show is sort of like runs at this sort of relentless speed and it's a speed that everyone knows in their bones, like the, the way that, you know, it's a procedural. It's it's like the quintessential procedural. So it works in a certain way and it sort of inexorably keeps going forward and forward and forward. And then at some point you earn a little a little pause mm. and and um, having a little pause. You know, the show is uh, Mariska, you know, Mariska and Chris for so long. But, you know, when to get a chance to sort of settle on Mariska for a while like that and to get her, you know, because so much of it is action and plot. And then to allow her, allow you to sort of settle in on her for a long time is really effective. And and I thought it was really well deserved, you know, for her to get that. You're right. And they don't do that that they don't do that that often. Like uh, this past season, season 22, they did an episode like that where it was just her and a woman in sort of a standoff during COVID. And that mm -hmm. was like very reminiscent of what you're talking about, like a just a pause episode. And uh, I'd say those two are the only ones that come to mind. But it's interesting. Yeah. So you, yeah. Have to, you have to be judicious about it. And then when you do it, you have to have a really good reason to do it because, you know, I mean, it's a formula, the formula that, that Dick Wolf found works so well. That yeah. was the other thing that happened when I watched, when I watched it the other day, I, I was like, this, this is a really good show. I was like, this, this show <laughs> works really well. You know, like it's um, when you've, especially, you know, by the time loophole happened, 
I mean, this show has been running forever, but it, it, it had been running long enough where it knows what it is. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to do it wrong. There are a lot of things that can sort of slow it down or you can trip up or, you know, it's not calibrated just right. But, you know, by this time, we know what it takes to make it happen. It doesn't mean that it always happens. But when it works really well and, you know, the actors and, and the direction are in sync with the writing, there, you know, there's not tension between the two. And it's allowed to be what it's supposed to be. It, it moves really quickly. It introduces so many things. Like it goes, that episode go from A to Z, like where you start and where you end up is so far. I mean, by the end, you know, by the end of it, you know, at first you're talking about like, you know, uh, this poor little kid is getting taken advantage of in this, in, you know, in this one building, but then it turns into this huge multinational corporation doing these terrible things to these people. And, and it's about class and everything else. And, when that happens and it works really well, it's really effective. And then, and it's personalized because, you know, it's Mariska. You're watching, you know, you're watching Benson. You're watching, you care about Benson. You watch her in danger and then you watch her colleagues slash friends trying to help her or not being able to help her as the case may be. That's, it's really good. As a viewer, I love when the characters are personally invested in a case. And you mentioned Webb earlier with your nephew. As an actor, were you kind of, were you jazzed when you opened the script and... Saw that you were going to super jazz. You know, I have to shout out uh, Paul Grelong, who is the writer on that episode who I met and he, we went to the same college, like much different times. Uh, but he came over, introduced himself to me and said, hey, you know, I have an idea about your character. And I thought, oh, really? You know, and then uh, it was really nice to meet him and went away, but then came back and that episode crops up. And I, you know, it was, you know, it's that sort of a situation where someone comes along and has an idea and can. Uh, and I'm just really, you know, just grateful for it. He was like looking along the universe of the show and just thought, what can I, what can I do that hasn't been done before? Yeah. Where can we explore that hasn't been? So I, I really appreciated that for sure, because I'm so grateful for the 10 years that I spent on that show. But as an actor, you know, like you, you want a lot of different kinds of opportunities and Morales is the kind of part that is, it, you know, I could write a book on, you know, that kind of a part. It's, it's such a deceptively difficult thing because in so many ways, it's contrary to everything you've learned as an actor. You know, for like in, in, in one of the examples is you don't want people to pay too much attention to you. You know, like you want to be paid attention to just enough to convey the information in a way that nobody notices. So things happen like they think your name is Teru instead of Ruben because <laughs> because you, they're in the flow of it and it, they never think to think of it. Whereas as an actor, you're sort of thinking, you know, your primary job is to serve story, which is what you're doing here. But you also want to play roles. You want to play interesting characters. You want to play uh, roles that people remember or are interested in. And, you know, it's nothing against Morales, who I love and the show that I love. But but Morales on the show was not a character that you were going to go home with and follow. You know, like his job was to convey a lot of complex information, information that pushed the plot quickly. And then he would leave. And then if you needed him again, he'd be there again to explain something else or to give them something else to do. But that is one of the reasons we love SVU and like B.D. Wong's character is that you do learn. Yeah, um, I know some of the technology is mm -hmm. not real or whatnot, but because of characters like you, I feel we get to learn real life stuff that comes together in the, in the episode. You know, what was really funny is one time I was having lunch in the city and um I can't remember where we were. Like, I, I think we were in a cafeteria somewhere. Like, it was the cafeteria of 
I, I can't remember where, but there, there were all kinds of, you know, it was New York, people everywhere sitting at this table. And, you know, you just get that feeling all of a sudden there's a lot of people looking over, you know, and I, and, and like there's people looking at the table and I looked over and there was a whole table of people and I looked over and made eye contact and they were like, Morales. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, hmm, like, uh, yes. <laughs> and they turned around and they were all real Taru. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> And Amazing. so that, that was one of those, like, it, it was like four or five people. And I, I was like, that is like a perfect, like what a, of all the people I could run into, you know, like they saw what I did in a much different way than most people. Yeah. Did. Well, they so were like I, representation I really matters. <laughs> totally. <laughs> we're being represented. Totally. It was nice. Yeah. <laughs> they sort of laughed too. They were like, you know, gosh, the stuff that you can do. <laughs> We can't really do that. That doesn't yeah. really exist. And we laughed about it or whatever. But it was really nice because I thought, you know, it was just sort of like meeting, meeting the peeps, you know? Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, you're definitely like cleaning up images all the time in a way that I think is impossible. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we yeah. need you for TV. So, yeah, so so many episodes and um, any guest stars that you were specifically excited to get to meet or work with or all the time. Are you that show? I mean, all the yeah. time, every, every week, it's sort of like, you know, like Carol Burnett. Yeah. Uh, oh, Jim True Frost. Like, I'm such a huge fan of The Wire. And um, when Jim was on the show, it was such a pleasure to meet and talk to him. And then, of course, the great Robin Williams and. um you know, getting to do a scene with Robin Williams, you know, wow, and he yeah. sort of, he, he, uh, you know, he gets me on the, on the witness stand and takes me apart, but just, it was fun to, I mean, you know, you get to do a scene with Robin Williams, but then also you get to spend the day with them, you know, cause these are very long days. So you, you get to spend, you know, 15 hours, you know, like, you know, around Robin Williams. And that was, that was very special. Was he, wow. is he like funny on set or very focused, like his character <laughs> or there a balance? He was non-stop. Okay. Non-stop. Like it's almost like he, he was almost like, um, it, it was, he was like an electrical cord and then electricity would run through it and he would just jolt and, and whatever was coming through him, it would just come out, come out, come out. He would explode for energy, then sort of come down. And then he would just follow it to the end all the time. So he might start saying something. He was a joke and then it would lead him all the way down. And then he'd be talking to the crew and go, going all the way to the back. And it must've been completely exhausting, but he, that's just sort of the way he, he seemed to be functioning. Yeah. I think I've heard that before from people that have met him, that he's really on a lot, that he was really on a lot, you know, and, but also kind. That's the yeah. thing. He, he was also uh, attentive, professional and kind. So these are the good ones or like things that stick out in a positive way. You know, for our podcast, we research the true crimes the episodes are based on. Were there any scripts that came your way or episodes where you were like, oh, my God, like that really kind of you remember being bummed about the subject matter? Well, it is bad things happening to women and children. So Yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so there is that, <laughs> you know, uh, just generally speaking. Um, I, you know, I just always appreciated the fact that they were always trying to take things from the headlines and the fun translation of it into SVU land. So very often not a direct um, copy, but how are they going to artistically fit that in this week? So it was never really so much like, a, oh, God, I can't believe it. It was it was more like a wow, you know, like I'm curious to see how they deal with this. You know, and I think that's the huge challenge of the show. You know, even with when my last season happened, like they'd been on the air for so long already. It's just that, you know, and, and now 10 plus years later, it's sort of like, um, 
how do you continue to be relevant, continue to find stories? Because by now you're telling the same story the third or the fourth time. You know, it's very similar to another story. So how do you do that? You know, like, and that's, that's, the, cha- that's the great challenge that the folks that are working on the show now, you know, are dealing with, I would imagine. And so when you were on that, like you were talking about your recurring plus status. So like when you started on the show, did you have any idea that you were going to be on for like 10 years? I mean, probably you couldn't have known, right? You just, no. Was it supposed to just be like a couple of episodes and then it just kept going and going and going? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was just, you know, it was awesome because the person that cast me on my first episode, I had worked with on a show called 100 Center Street. It was an, a, a wonderful British, British director named Steve Schill. And he said to me, hey, listen, you're going to get an audition for Law and Order SVU. It's it's not a very good part. He's only he's in it for like just a little bit. I'm you know, but I'm directing it. And they say that he might come back once or twice. So I thought, you know, we were talking about theater and everything else. I was like, this might help pay for your theater habit. You know, just a couple extra episodes. And I, I was like, that's great. Thanks. And yeah, it's true. It's it, Bert Trevor had a couple of lines in this episode. It was really. But I think as a result, Steve got to cast whoever he wanted because it wasn't that big a deal. It was just some coming in and out. They were thinking about other things. So he cast me and then it turned into two or three episodes, I think. If you, you know, when you watch the show, like they were constantly in the process of trying to add more, you know, Taru guys, more CSU guys, more. um, And I think it's just a, it's a hard job. It's a hard job. Like it's, it's a hard job that has a lot of unexpected twists and turns that makes, make it hard to come into. So, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, we were joking at the beginning of it, that it's, it's really hard to, the, you're saying things that real people don't say, and then you're doing it while you're walking down a hallway and crawling under a police line and, you know, handing somebody a clipboard and everything else. And, you know, you don't learn those things in acting school, you know, they're just, and then you compound it by the fact that you're on a show that works notoriously late, late, late hours and long, long, long days. And it goes on forever. And it's a little bit of a, um, you know, it's a really famous show and people get freaking, you get nervous. So if you take somebody and you put them in that situation, it's really hard to do this job. The very first thing that goes is your ability to say things, you know, like you get nervous and it's one thing if you're nervous and you have three lines, you're like, I, I didn't know where she was. Uh, then Johnny came and knocked over the garbage can and, and he seemed really mad, you know, and then ding, ding. But if you have to come in and you have to say, you know, the woman was six foot one and weighed 240 and uh, this, fe- you know, we, we, her blood pressure was this over this and we tested her for that and no, 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 That's really hard. You rehearse it, you think you know it, and then you get to set and you don't know anybody, so you're nervous. Uh, and then the people come in and they start putting things on you. Here, take this pen and you know, put, you're going to be wearing this coat on top of this coat. And oh, by the way, we're outside and it's raining. You start freaking out. You start getting really nervous. And then uh, you're sitting there like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And then your scene is with Chris Maloney. And then Chris Maloney comes in. You're like, oh my God, that's Chris Maloney, you know, and it makes it really hard. So I think, you know, you know, if, if you get nervous and then you can't do it and then, you know, you mess up a couple of times and then people start paying attention and then it gets worse and you can't do it. So then they start going with people who are used to doing it. So I think basically what happened was it's not the kind of skill set that you learn in acting school. It's not the kind of skill set you learn in a book. It's very particular to a show like this. I mean, now there's a million shows like this, but it's a very hard thing to do. Like to prepare for it, you, you just say, you know, I talk about it with Mike. You, you do your lines while you empty the dishwasher. Do your lines while walking up and down the stairs. Do your lines while twirling in a circle because you know that you're going to be put in a situation where it's all going to get thrown up in the air. So that's part of your preparation. And I, I think that, you know, on paper, it's a really easy thing 
you think it's a really easy thing. Like, let's get five guys to do to do this and or let's get someone today and we'll put them in tomorrow. But it, it's it's much harder than that. It's deceptively hard. Yeah, I can. Imagine. I like this tip. I'm learning lines while doing errands. That's mm-hmm. I hope everyone listening. You know, that's a good one. <laughs> well, physical action is really important because, you know, memory is such a weird thing, you know, like. um you know, actors on stage know like so much of the time you forget your lines, but you know, if you know you're blocking, it's attached in your mind to your movement with so, with a show like this, though, where you don't have rehearsal and you don't know what your physical action is. You know, it, it could say that you're in the lab and then you get there and it's not the lab that you envisioned. You're actually in this part of the lab or the director on the day has said, you know, instead, we're going to start you from the elevator. The, oh, man, it's going to be the walk and talk, mm. which is the hardest thing to do for a tech thing, because. You're saying all this crazy stuff and then they're going to give you this long route and you have to say this line at the point where this person crosses in front of you. And then you have to finish right when you hit the, you know, the thing over here. So hard. And there's so many people working and the camera is so heavy for the person that's holding the Steadicam. And you're just thinking, don't mess up. Yeah, it's like choreography, really. It's so it's so complicated. Wow. Well. With all those nerves and all the challenges, did you have any um, buddy on set that was like a friend, or were there any? And is there anybody you kept in touch with after well, all those Mike years Doyle. on the show, or Mike Doyle? <laughs> Anyone yeah. besides Mike Doyle? <laughs> I think I, I loved. It's it's hard to. Uh, there aren't many people who were unlikable. You know, like it's just it's just a gr- such a great. I mean, loophole was amazing because. Everybody is in it. You know, even Chris, even though Chris leaves like right away and then he comes back at the end. It's like so it's like because for so many episodes, not everybody is on. Right. But like, you know, Dan is in it. Um, you know, Diane is in it. Uh, Tamara's in it. Me and Mike are both in it. It's like, you know, like and then um, Munch and Finn are both in it. Like some because sometimes like they're coming and they're going. But this was an episode where everyone's passing through and you see every a BD wasn't in it. But. And some fun guest stars, a cute kid. We always like when there's a cute kid. Yeah. And the mother, I thought, was really good. She was, that was, that's, was. A, that's a tough spot. That's a, you know, she did a great job. Yeah, she was great. Well, one of your, um, you were in Man in the High Castle. Um, did you work with Sebastian Roche? He's I He's did. been on SVU and we've interviewed him before. Did you guys bond over that at all or had a lot of work today? <laughs> we, just, we, we were just exchanging texts this morning. Wow. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, we're, uh, shall I say this? We we have been exchanging a lot of text recently about uh, K-dramas. <laughs> oh, we're, Squid Game? Well, this morning in particular was Squid Game, yeah. I keep hearing about it. I haven't watched it yet, but I keep hearing about Squid Game. Oh, I really think you should watch it. Oh, okay, I'm going to watch it. In Korean with subtitles or the English translation? I heard there's debates on that. I'd say absolutely in Korean. I mean, unless unless you're a person where subtitles really take you out. Um, no, but, no, I can do that. But it's really, you know, I don't think an actor will ever say, I think you should watch my performance with someone dubbing, dubbing it in. <laughs> Although I've had yeah. people send me stuff like um, just recently, uh, someone sent me Morales talking in French, which I thought was really oh. funny. Yeah. I've watched SVU um, in Mexico and stuff um, in hotel. It's my hotel show. No, for sure. We, I wanted to ask you one quick thing, too. Um, we have been told by our Filipino friend that Lou Diamond Phillips is the king of the Philippines. And he was in not only the episode Faults that you were in of SVU, but I believe you worked on Prodigal Son with him as well. So do you guys know each other? Uh, we just for Prodigal Son, uh, we had a little bit of a meeting of the minds there. He's 
I mean, I would say he is absolutely, if not the king, you know, <laughs> one of the one of the many. Just you know, I, I've admired him so much from the time you know when I was a kid and La Bamba was on. Oh. I, I was like, who? Thank God for you know who is that guy? You know he. Uh, I feel you know I, I feel seen, and uh, he he's just like a again like a great example of someone who does so many things well. You know, like he's directed, he writes, obviously he's a wonderful actor. Um, and he's again, a very kind, generous person, you know, and, you know, I think, I think if you, if you have a little bit of success in this business and you're able to sort of be around for a long time, it's hard not to become very aware of how hard it is and the gratitude that you feel about it. And I, I think that, um, as a result, like you often meet a lot of you know, people that have been around a little while, like they're amazing people, like just really interesting people. And Lou is, I would say Lou is one of those people. And then personally, I just want to say, I'm from Skokie. We read that you're from Evanston. So I obviously I was excited. Wow. <laughs> yeah. We're neighbors. We're neighbors. <laughs> Wait, did you go to the movie theater in Morton Grove? That was like a dollar 75 and it was the old Morton Grove Theater? Like, what is yeah. that like on, on golf or something like that? I Not anymore. It was on Dempster, but it was like, um, oh, Oh, like uh, the movie came out six months ago or something, but you got to see it for a dollar seventy five. Wait, never... is it the one? Did it have like a like a really big awning in front? Like, the, was it the Morton Grove Theater? Is that what it was called? I don't know. It was by Dominant. It was by um, you know, Amazing Savings. It's because, now a shoe carnival. Because I think if it's the theater that I'm thinking of, that's where I saw Star Wars for the first time in 1977. Wow. Whoa, that would be wow. that would be nice. Lisa Morton Grove Theater is on Dempster Street. Yeah, I bet that I bet it's that's then the that's one. The wow. One. <laughs> that's exciting. Connections. I've just talked about that theater before on this show. So I was like, oh, my God, if you went there. Here's a random memory you've just stirred up. You know what else I saw in that movie theater? I've not thought about this. I mean, I don't even know if you've even heard of this movie. And I was so excited to see it. I saw the movie Who's Killing the Great Chefs of Europe. It might have nice. been like second one. That was the name of the movie. It was like one of these 70s ensemble comedies. I think like, I want to say like George Siegel was in it and like all these amazing 70s actors probably getting paid a lot of money and like just misbehaving terribly and getting to do a movie together. Like it's just them. <laughs> it's like a whodunit. And I was so excited. I was so excited to see that movie. Oh my I was going to Google it, but the name was so wild. I forgot what Wait, you just said. Lisa, it is <laughs> yeah. directed by Ted Kotcheff, that movie. No. Ah. Yeah. And it stars George Siegel, but there Ted Kotcheff. Oh my oh God. Oh my gosh. And George Siegel's been on an episode of SVU as well. RIP. Everything's a full circle moment here. I'm feeling um, too spiritual. Okay. We got to, <laughs> I'm getting too cheesy and sentimental, but very excited. Yeah. Joel, if there, I don't know, do you have any like other little tidbits or thing like funny little behind the scenes things that ever happen that you want to share before you go? I mean, our audience loves that kind of stuff, but if you don't, don't feel on the spot because I know it's 10 plus years ago. No, it's just, it's, there's so many, so many great stories there. There were, I just, I think the takeaway is they're, they're, they're all really nice people, you know, like I, when I think about my interactions with all the folks there, I always have like a, a fun story about, you know, about everybody. The one person I think that is universally beloved, like by any demographic you could think of would be ice. Like you, you would be <laughs> like, you'd be shooting on location. Like I'd be standing with ice, like waiting to go to set or something. We'd be standing outside, say like on 23rd street. 
And every single person that walked by, I'm talking like 80-year-old grandmas. What's up, Ice? What's up? (laughs) Uh, 14-year-old boys. Ice, what's up? What's up, guys? (laughs) Cops. Ice tea. Yay. What's going on? You know, whatever. Everybody. Everybody. Like, and um, I think just because he's the same with everybody. Like, super... He's just one, he's just somebody that comes across as, he's just really genuine seeming. Like he doesn't, he doesn't change whoever he's talking to. It's just, so you just sort of feel really comfortable. And it's funny to watch how that um, manifests itself on the street. You know, the way he, everyone seems to sort of respond to him and feel up, feel like in, like, um, moved to reach out and to be like, what's up, Ice? Like everybody. Like it was really funny. Yeah, he's the people's cop. (laughs) Um. People's cop. Which is sort of ironic, but there you go. Oh my God. He's so nice. And he sounded the best of any guest we've ever had. I mean, he's in like a full studio setup with his, uh, with his recording booth. But we also wanted to mention that Joel is in this show called devils, which is on the CW and season two is coming out this winter. And that stars Patrick Dempsey, McSteamy or McDreamy, no McDreamy. Sorry. I don't watch that show and was filmed in Rome, which is a city I used to live in and I'm obsessed with. So check out devils. Um, he was so nice. I love the, idea of recurring plus that's totally or like what is he what that's like what he was calling himself like yeah he had so much um insight as a like from a unique perspective we don't get to hear about like you don't think about how hard those roles are or why they would keep someone i just um i enjoyed hearing the ins and outs of his job and he was very giving with info yeah, for sure. And we're neighbors. I mean, we grew up basically in the same neighborhood. I bet we know I'm going to go to the mall um, today and buy some eyeshadows. And, you know, <laughs> he could have been there, too. <laughs> um. Yeah. Well, let's postmortem this shit. Uh, what Loophole. did we learn from today's episode? What we le- I feel like pinky in the brain. What we learn every week. The world is corrupt and evil and burn it all. And let's start over. Yeah, it's pretty fucked. I mean. We also learn once again what an absolute fantasy this show is that like one female cop takes down a multinational corporation is like pretty crazy. But I'm happy that the fictional boy Diego got the fictional chemo he needed so that he could fictionally live. Um, But also, I think I realized I'm fully well, also from the episode I watched today this morning. But I think Stephanie March is becoming like above even Danny Pino. I'm like too attracted to her at this moment in time. She's very hot. Stephanie March is jumping up um, to the to the leaderboard to the leader. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think one thing we learned, too, is like, be careful what you sign. Like, I mean, just be careful of like the fine print of like anything that's going to be sprayed in your home or anything. No like, one wants to help you because I, yeah. I know this is obviously different poisonous pesticides and Lulu Lulu row leggings. But I do feel like don't give anyone money. No one's trying to succeed. Like. It sucks. My mom always says it's better to have an open heart and like be like hurt all the time than be closed off to the world type of thing. But eventually, I think when you get older, you have to just be like, you know what? Nah, I don't trust what's going on. Right. You're not just being nice to me for something. But that's like a sad way to live. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it's like, yeah, don't don't let anyone spray anything in your home. They're not trying to help you. (laughs) Right, 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 right. That's so true. Also, the mom, she's an incredible actress. I mean, I'm so distracted because I have SVU on on mute behind me, and it is an episode we've uh, covered. It's with <laughs> Hank. Episode? It's with Hank Abraham becoming. It's a Samantha Corbin Miller written, but I don't oh, remember the name right, of it. Right, right. The one, um, 
Hank uh, Abraham's a pedophile. He's wait, a- it's called, it's like incidental people. It's like uh, the people that get, what's it? Collateral damage. Collateral damage. Collateral damage. <laughs> incidental people, though. Another classic <laughs> SVU episode, as we all know. Um, <laughs> collateral damages. Also that um, people treat the most vulnerable in society with what they can get away with. But it's also because we don't really pay those people well. So you get people who don't want to be there taking care of people who really need high levels of care and they get abused. Is that a lesson? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it is something we learn time and time again. Like racism's real. (laughs) Yeah. It's like uh, three years after in this, into this podcast, I don't know if we're going to keep learning. It'll just be like, (laughs) it'll have to radicalize us all. I did. Even though this guy was robbing people's buildings, I did appreciate that that like sort of methy tweaker with the ear uh, wax situation wh- did kind of like see something and say something like he did send in these pictures. And that's like how this whole thing got discovered was because he was like someone's touching this fucking kid. And he's weirdly like the methy Pete Pied Piper of this building and all the kids follow him around and. Yes, you got to love a meth head with a heart. You know what I mean? Yeah. He yeah, did yeah, it yeah. weirdly. It's like all you had to do was tell the cops, but instead you paid a kid. The kid got shoved. I think focus. because he didn't want he didn't want any eyes on him because he was robbing the building all the time. And I learned uh, there, if there's evidence, uh, this team will find it. Is there a flipped picture in a reflection of a truck in a window? Like they'll find you. That Be careful. Was, yeah, they're going to do a recreation ride along with a bakery driver. It's just tough because sometimes I'm like, you are dumb. Do not do a crime. You'll not get away with it. You will get caught. And then on the other side, I'm like, police fuck up constantly. Don't worry about it. You could be as dumb as you want. So it's like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know which one it is. And then in terms of the real life crime, too, I feel like I knew about Tuskegee, but like I really you really do understand that like the 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 distrust of black people of the medical system really goes back and is like historically backed, you know, like the, the, they've been obviously mistreated, but stuff like that is like, you, you're like, Oh, of course, black people have been mistreated forever, but like, you didn't realize that they were treated as literal science experiments, you know? So that was, um, harrowing, but obviously things we need to know, we have to know history or we're doomed to repeat it as they say. Doomed to repeat. We've been repeating. We will never learn. I'm just trying to get <laughs> rich um, until the end. You know, it's just uh, that's it. So you can help people. Um, so I could just <laughs> live my fantasies before it's all over. The end of the world. <laughs> yeah, I'd let while I'm chewing on rats in the street and having to stab my friends. Um, I think <laughs> I'd like to be wearing pink diamonds. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> I'd like to have my Marikami bag while yeah. I do it. If I'm at the purge, I want to be wearing Gucci. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, come on. But let's uh, let's actually, you know, get into our what would Sister Peg do segment of this week? Because where we talk about actually helping people. Um, and uh, yeah, what would Sister Peg do is our weekly segment where we kind of give you a resource, a book, an article, something that can kind of open up uh, the topic that we talked about today for you and give you more information. Because as we know, we are only um, an hour to two hour podcast, depending on how talky we are. This week, we're cho- we've chosen to highlight The Arc, which is um, thearcarc.org. And The Arc promotes and protects the human rights of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and actively supports their full inclusion and participation in their communities. And um, they fight for the civil rights of people with disabilities when it comes to education, housing, long-term services, employment, Medicaid, and a variety of other um, 
avenues and you can get involved by donating and finding a chapter near you or attending an event. Just check out their website and all the resources are there for you. Thank you for that, Kara. Um, and, you know, also you could just try to do one nice thing a day for someone. Yeah. Have a couple bucks in your pocket. Just be ready. Um, you know, hold a door. It does make the world um, feel better. One sweet thing. Um, but <laughs> I was just remembering someone was doing such a long spiel for money yesterday. And I finally had to be like, bro, you're taking too long. Just here. Please stop. Your poetry is too much. I don't care what you do with this money. I don't need you to shine my shoe. I don't care. You gotta go. I'm like, and I told, he goes, oh, come on. But I, your shoe, I go, I don't need these Adidas scrubbed. You gotta go. But uh, yeah, my sneakers, <laughs> but here's, here's cash. Okay. Got distracted again. There's a fucking Jamie Lee Curtis Halloween commercial. We got to get out of here. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> next week. Watch along with us, please. We are doing Chameleon, um, season four, episode one, star-studded, Peacock, Hulu, VPN sticks, your local library. Um, enjoy the episode. It is a good one. And um, welcome back next week. We're really thrilled that you guys like this podcast. Yes. Keep messaging us, email us, and we'll see you guys next week. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmessedupppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmessedupppod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to SVU Superfan and our incredible producer, Hannah Kyle Creighton. And to our sound engineer and personal hero, Annalise Nelson. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song. To Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thanks to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. Dun, dun. dun. <laughs>